ability or of framing the questions or questions the matter was not ripe for determination. The first question for determination is a preliminary one, which is whether the question on formulation of referendum question was ripe for determination. The doctrine of ripeness focuses on when a dispute has matured. It prevents parties from approaching a court before a party has been subjected to any prejudice or real threat of prejudice as a result of a registration or conduct that is challenged. Uh, the, at the time of filing of the subject petitions, particularly petition E400 of 2020, the amendment bill was here to be subjected to the county assemblies for debate. This means that INDC was yet to be invited to make a determination on the manner and form of the referendum questions, taking into consideration that INDC obligation under Article 257.10 of the Constitution had not arisen, Toyota JEA was right in finding that there was no live controversy before the High Court, which ought to be to have declined to make a determination on this case. Accordingly, I find that the issue of whether Article 277.10 of the Constitution entails or requires that all specific proposed amendments to the Constitution should be submitted as separate and distinct referendum questions was not ripe for determination. On the issue of costs, this being a public interest uh, matter, I also find that each party, like it was found in the courts below, should bear their own costs. Uh, my findings, therefore, are Number one, the basic structure doctrine and the four sequential steps for amendment as prescribed by the two court, superior courts below are not applicable in Kenya under the Constitution of Kenya 2010. The pres number two, the president is not permitted to initiate a constitutional amendments or changes through a popular initiative route provided under Article 257 of the Constitution. That being the case, the Constitution Bill does not uh, pass master as a popular initiative under the provisions of Article 257 of the Constitution. Three, the second schedule of the amendment bill is unconstitutional for want of public participation, a constitutional obligation that flows from Articles 10 to A and 897A of the Constitution. Four, civil proceedings cannot be instituted in any court against the president or the person performing the functions of the president during their tenure of office in respect of anything done or not done contrary to the Constitution. Issue number five, there was no obligation on IMBC to ensure that the promoters of the impugned popular initiative complied with the requirements of public participation before determining the amendment bill. In addition, there was 
public participation with respect to the amendment bill, save for the save with respect to the second schedule of the impugned bill. Issue number six, IBC and the requisite quorum to undertake the verification of signatures in support of the amendment bill and Article 257.4 of the Constitution. Uh, seven, I find the question raised regarding the interpretation of Article 257.10 of the Constitution on whether or not it entails or requires that all specific proposed amendments to the Constitution should be submitted as separate and distinct referendum questions was not ripe for determination. Uh, and lastly, on cost, this being a public interest matter, I find each party should bear their own costs uh, of this uh, litigation and also the other courts below. That is my judgment. I will now request the Honorable Justice Ouko to read his judgment. Thank you, Judge President. This is um, a summarized version of my judgment. This appeal, consolidating two others, marks the first time in the history of the Supreme Court of Kenya to determine the remit of constitutional amendment through a popular initiative under Article 257 of the Constitution. The road traveled by Kenyans since 1991 in search of a new constitution, culminating in the 2010 document, has been sinuous and meandering. A road characterized by violent demonstrations, protests, mass actions, and even loss of life like the biblical narrow road which leadeth unto life, it was the way, the only way to a new beginning. And so at 10.26 a.m. on Friday 27th, August 2010, with a single stroke of his pen, President Mwai Baki endorsed the draft constitution, and there was a dawn of a new era before an ecstatic Kenyan people, and as cannons broke into a 21-gun salute, the president released two white doves as a sign of peace, love, hope, marking the birth of the Second Republic. Having emerged from this phase, Kenya embarked on building constitutionalism, giving meaning to the terms and values of the supreme law to which Kenyans must turn, must turn to for protection in times of need. It was time for the people to read meaning into its words. It's only through this robust enforcement, application, and interpretation by courageous citizens, lawyers, legislature, executive, and even more so by judges, that the Constitution will be safeguarded to realize the Kenyan dream contained in the preamble. The jurist, um, and so, with the difficult history of constitutional making enumerated in the lead judgment of, of the Honorable the Chief Justice, the question I pose, have the Kenyan people stayed true to the promise in the preamble that we, the people of Kenya, adopt, enact, and give this constitution to ourselves and to our future generations. 
So there were seven issues that were framed, uh, the first one being um, that on basic structure doctrine, and that's the one I now turn to. In the last 50 years, since the Supreme Court of India decided Kasavananda case, the name Kasavananda has been synonymous with the basic structure doctrine. And although the term basic structure has not been used, has, has been used in a few cases in this country in the past, it is during the hearing of this case from the High Court through to this court that it became a household name. I suppose knowing Kenyans in our true unique sense, there may be children today who are called basic structure, perhaps basic structure George Ochola. Just as there may be also in India children born in the 1970s who are given the name Kasavananda after the Hindu spiritual leader who lent his name to the iconic case as the petitioner. Unfortunately, I believe you are all aware Mr. Kasavananda passed on on the 6th September 2020 at the age of 79 years. The origin of basic structure doctrine has largely been attributed to the Indian Supreme Court decision in Kasavananda, with very little or no acknowledgement at all of Professor Conrad's contribution. Yet it is this German scholar who exported it to India. Professor Conrad's theory, which was applied in Kasavananda, postulates that there are implied limits on the power of parliament to amend certain protected provisions of the constitution called the basic structure. Under Article 368 of the Constitution of India, it is parliament and parliament alone that is reposed of the power to amend the constitution. And indeed, clause, clauses four and five even explicitly limits the power of the courts to review any act of parliament to amend the constitution. No amendment of the constitution made by parliament pursuant to the provisions of the constitution can be called in question in any court in India on any ground. However, in construing Article 368 and the limitations on the powers of the court to question the power of parliament, notwithstanding, the Supreme Court in Casavenanda held that although the article donates exclusive power to parliament to amend any provision of the constitution in accordance with the procedure in that article, the powers could not be used to damage, emasculate, destroy, abrogate, change, or alter the basic structure or the framework of the constitution. The theory was itself influenced by the German's political and constitutional history. Under Article 76 of the German's original constitution, called the Weimar Constitution, Parliament had the power to amend the constitution with a procedural constraint restraints that required two-thirds votes of the members of its parliament to pass an amendment. Adolf Hitler that well-known but reviled figure in history, used this same procedure, a procedure which is anchored in the Constitution, effortlessly to overhaul the entire Weimar Constitution and arbitrarily took away rights to freedoms of speech, 
Expression Association and habeas corpus. He then declared the state of emergency. This experience was to inform Germans constitutional reforms in their new constitution, the Grand Gazette, the Basic Law, substantive limits have been introduced to the amending power of parliament. Article 79 of the Basic Law explicitly bars any amendment to the provisions concerning the basic principles like federal, federalism, democracy, rule of law, separation of powers. Our own history is equally replete with the examples and instances that led to agitation for constitutional reforms, as the former constitution was in no better ranking than the Indian or the Wema constitutions. The former constitution provided for its alteration as opposed to amendment under section 47 and vested wholly the power to amend it in parliament, a common denominator with the Indian and the Wema constitutions. Our parliament under section 47, like parliaments of the two nations, could indiscriminately change and did in fact change the constitution at will in any manner whatsoever without reference to the people. The history of agitation to reverse the trend and save the constitution leading to the promulgation of the 2010 constitution is well known and are chronicled in details in my main judgment. But why is this history important? Just like India and Germany, where the seed of, of basic structure doctrine was planted, it is their unique history that influenced the path of constitutional reforms and the decision of the courts in those jurisdictions in applying the doctrine. Constitutions the world over reflect the uniqueness and specificity of each society, even if lessons or experiences can be drawn from those places. In the Kenyan situation, drawing from the past, informed by the present, and focusing on the future, the 2010 Constitution has set up a framework which returns Kenya to the path of democratization. Parliament cannot be used to pass amendments to the Constitution in the manner it did before 2010 because of the current inbuilt mechanisms and safeguards as well as the complex and elaborate procedures in the Constitution itself. The situation the Supreme Court of India was addressing in Kesavananda is unique to India based on the specific provisions of the Indian Constitution. Article 368, to be exact, their experience and also based on their history generally. Therefore, in relying on Kasavananda, Hook, Line, and Sinker to address the peculiar circumstances of Kenya, the superior courts below ought to have exercised caution and followed the guidelines repeatedly emphasized by this court in various cases, judges and magistrates rating board and the right case. Courts ought to avoid mechanistic approaches to president because it is inappropriate to pick a president all over the world simply because they appear to provide an answer to a matter at hand. Each of those presidents 
has its place in the jurisprudence of its own country of origin. There was justification to rely on Casavananda in interpreting section 47 of the former constitution in the Njoya case because at the time our constitutional framework was more or less similar to Article 368 of the Indian Constitution in the sense that the power to amend the Constitution reposed in Parliament and Parliament alone. But this is no longer the case in Kenya. Throughout the constitutional making process from the BOMAS draft, the WACO draft, the revised harmonized draft, and the proposed draft Constitution, it has, it has been made abundantly clear that since the Constitution embodies the will and aspirations of the people, they must be central to its amendment, and that there, are, there ought to be a balance to have a Constitution that is flexible enough for posterity and unforeseen needs, but rigid enough to prevent the, abuse, the abusive hyper-amendments of, of yesteryears. This balance was achieved by clear, unambiguous, and distinct tiered or multi-stage design model modified, codified in chapter 16, applying different procedures of amendment for different provisions of the Constitution. Specifically, amendment process of any matters in Article 255.1 is complex and onerous. It requires support of one million voters, requires the promoters to draft a bill, which then must be verified by the IEBC and finally, sorry, and approval by the county assemblies and parliament meeting a certain threshold and finally ratified in a referendum. Attempts to utilize both parliamentary and popular initi initiatives have failed essentially because of the tiered or multi-stage design of chapter 16. You remember the Okoa Kenya Bill 2016 Punguza Mizigo Bill of 2019. To this extent, even the two courts below agree that Article 255.1 embodies the basic structure of the Constitution of Kenya. For me, the most difficult part of the two judgments of the two courts below and the dilemma flowing from them is the imprecise scope and the extent of basic structure doctrine. Which provision in the Constitution of Kenya, for instance, are not amendable through the procedure in Chapter 16? What does it mean, for instance, when the High Court and the Court of Appeal accept, on the one hand, that all, um, all articles in the Constitution are amendable in accordance with the constitutional procedures provided, but on the other, qualifies the statement by declaring that basic structure of that very constitution cannot be altered using the amendment power in the constitution. What does it mean when they declare that the basic structure cons consists of the preamble, the 18 chapters, the 16 schedules, is it the Constitution is in entirety as a basic structure? Where do Kenyans who wish to propose amendments to the Constitution go to be shown which provisions cannot be amended using Chapter 16 procedure? 
Do they go to some deity, some oracle of Delphi, for instance? The interpreting, in interpreting the Constitution, courts must provide pragmatic solutions without adding confusion to the controversy that the parties have brought to them for resolution in the first place. Amending the Constitution is not a light matter, therefore, limitations to its amendment must sufficiently be specific and unambiguous. In India today, because of the nebulous nature of implied limitations to constitutional amendment since Casavananda case, every court has attempted to identify by listing some of the essential structural elements of the constitution that in their individual perceptions constitute the basic structure of the Indian constitution on a case-to-case -case basis. Chapter 16 exhaustively sets out the process of initiating an amendment to the, to the protected provisions. Of course, that process includes public participation and a referendum. That is in, in, in answer to the question of where is the juridical basis in the Kenyan context for the proposition by the two courts that the basic structure um, of the Constitution can only be amended through primary constituent power, which must include four sequential processes, namely civic education, public participation, and coalition of views, constituent assembly debate, and ultimately a referendum. The last matter under this ground is to consider the unanimous conclusion by both superior courts below that the proposed amendments in the draft bill amounted to dismemberment of the Constitution. Besides the number of articles sought to be amended, the courts were concerned about the overall effect, that they were so far-reaching in character, scope, and content as to, and I quote, shake the foundation and alter the identity and character of the Constitution as to effectively dismember it. The learned judges variously defined the word dismemberment to mean doing any of the following in the Constitution, unmaking, replacing, disassemble, completely change identity, abolish, tear apart, amputate, and rough mutilation. Do the proposals in the amendment draft bill create a new constitution? Do the verbs unmake, replace, disassemble, completely change identity, abolish, tear apart, amputate, employed by the learned judges to describe the proposals in the bill and to suggest that the proposals were, dis were a dis dismemberment of the constitution, are they are they so? In my most respectful view, these words were an overkill, and the sledgehammer employed to deal with them was in itself disproportionate. <coughs> I end this ground where I started. However great, however progressive a written constitution may be, history, experiences, and changes in society would necessitate corresponding changes to the written, con to the written text of the Constitution. 
with each generation having the right and freedom to determine the law under which they wish to live. And no generation should bind the course, aspirations, constitutional expectations, values, principles, and object, objects of generations to come. The language of chapter 16 is clear and plain, leaving no room for conjecture, inference, or implication. Neither the explicit nor the implicit language of the Constitution, the history of constitutional making, or any principle of constitutional interpretation in this country permits the courts to do what the courts have accused previous parliaments of perpetuating, that is to undertake indiscriminate and radical amendments to the Constitution by imposing an alien method of amending it. In the result, I would set aside the judgment of the Court of Appeal and hold that to the extent that the basic structure doctrine limits the amendment power contrary to the express terms of Chapter 16 of the Constitution, it does not apply to the Constitution of Kenya. And that there are no four sequential steps for the amendment of the Constitution other than the steps outlined in Chapter 16. The second issue is on the role of the President in the process. This question to me, and of course the question of basic structure doctrine, are the real norms of this dispute. This particular question seeks to answer the issue of legality, legitimacy, and constitutionality of the process leading to the formulation of the draft bill based on the true construction of Article 257. The High Court was persuaded and declared that the President does not have authority under the Constitution to initiate changes to, by way of amendment. That a constitutional amendment can only be initiated either by Parliament through parliamentary initiative under Article 256 or by a popular initiative under 257. The Court of Appeal, in a unanimous decision, agreed and affirmed that conclusion. Friday afternoon, March 9th, 2018, which was the same day the justices of the Court of Appeal elected me as their president at Safari Park Hotel, will be remembered as one of the many defining moments in the history of Kenya. It was on that day that in a move that took many by surprise, the president and his political opponent, Honorable Odinga, with whom he had recently engaged in fiercest and bare-knuckle political contest, met and agreed in what has come to be known as the handshake to end their political rivalry that had been witnessed in the previous elections. The last political contest between the two was so fierce that at the end of it, both laid claim to the presidency. It has been argued that the president and Honorable Odinga, both well-meaning, intended to ease this, the seething tension and restore peace, unity, and tranquility in the country. To realize this objective and as an understanding of the handshake, the two agreed to pursue a nine-point agenda styled the Building Bridges Initiative, or BBI. A series of events followed. 
and we, I trace these events to mark out the role of the president in the process. By a Gazette notice of 31st May 2018, the president appointed a 14-member team known as the Task Force on Building Bridges to United um, Advisory. By a subsequent special Gazette notice of 10th January 2020, the steering committee on the implementation of building bridges to a United Kenya Task Force report was also established and as the name suggests to implement the report of the task force. Of interest, one of its mandate was to propose administrative policy of constitutional changes that may be necessary. The steering committee's report was presented to the president on 21st October 2020. It was subsequently launched on 26th October 2020 at Bomas of Kenya in an, in an event presided over by the president. A third entity, the Building Bridges National Secretariat, whose origin is not clear to me since I have not been able to trace on record any appointment letter or a Gazette notice, appears on the scene. So uh, co-chaired by Honorable Dennis Waweru, a, member, a former member of parliament for Dagoreti South constituency, and Honorable Junette Mohammed, a sitting member of the National Assembly representing the people of Sunna East. On 25th November 2020, at the Kenyatta International Conference Center, the president launched the draft bill and rolled out the collection of signatures to support the initiative. A popular initiative for amendment of the Constitution according to Article 257 is commenced by the promoters getting at least one million registered voters to support it. It is the promoters who must formulate the draft bill. They are required thereafter to deliver the bill and supporting signatures to IBC. And from this point, the process is self-executing along the lines in Chapter 16. The term popular initiative has not been defined in the Constitution. But for the present purpose, the definition sources employed by both the High Court and the Court of Appeal are unanimous that the term popular initiative can only be an initiative by the general public. In common parlance, simply the people. The citizen who was described by Madan, Chief Justice in Gidunguri, as the man in the market, the man on Pangani bus. On the other hand, the word promoters in the Constitution is used only in Article 157. It is apparently a term of art in the context of amendment of the Constitution describing the persons not in the company law sense or in the colloquial sense, but those who initiate or champion constitutional changes. Beside the definition of the term popular initiative, there is history behind the process for the intendment of the framers. The CKRC final report 2005 acknowledged and recommended that apart from parliament, it was necessary for the people, in bracket citizens, 
and civil society in exercise of their constituent power to be involved in the constitutional, constitutional changes. The term popular initiative originated from this report. With that history in mind, there cannot be any de debate as to the target of Article 257. It is the people. The suggestion that Honorable Waweru and Honorable Mohammed as co-chairpersons of the Secretariat and not the President were the promoters cannot be accurate. First, the Secretariat emerged, as I've said, from the blues, as it were, for the first time in the process. However, Honorable Waweru himself, on behalf of himself and the co-chairperson, so an affidavit of 5th February 2021 to state that the building bridges to a united Kenya was created and mandated with the task of initiating a constitutional amendment process and unite, uni, unifying Kenyans among other roles. That the task force and the secretariat conducted a robust nationwide public engagement and collection of views and that from these views it made various legislative policy and constitutional amendment proposals in various fields affecting Kenyans. So that although the Secretariat does not disclose its origin, its ancestry, its family tree, its gene cannot be conceived. The affidavit says it all. The great-grandfather is the handshake. The, the grandfather is the task force. Its father is the steering committee. And the surname of all of them is Building Bridges Initiative, Elias BBI. The bill which the Secretariat presented together with the signatures to the IEBC was clearly, so to speak, inherited from the steering committee almost a replica of the bill annexed to the steering committee's report to the president. The draft bill was curiously signed by Building Bridges Initiative as the promoters, and not Honorable Waweru or Honorable Junet, or even the secretariat. It's not clear how they went about collecting the signatures, but on record, at least, there is some evidence of state involvement going by the letter written by the Principal Secretary, State Department for Sports, directing the Director General, Sports Kenya, to supervise the staff in the organization to complete the forms and sign appropriately and urgently the, uh, the forms. The conclusion I reach uh, should be apparent on the first limb of this ground is that the President as a matter of fact, commenced and spearheaded the process from its inception and only passed on the baton to the two co-chairpersons when it was too late in the day and beyond recall that the president is ineligible to directly or indirectly initiate a constitutional amendment to the constitution under any of the prescribed circumstances. That he cannot act as an an ordinary citizen because he is not, and at the same time claim to be exercising executive authority. He cannot 
in the circumstances of chapter 16, run with the hare and hunt with the hound. It has been argued that by barring the president from initiating the process of constitutional amendment, his right to equality and freedom from discrimination would be violated. The nature of violation has not been demonstrated. Looking at the facets of the rights and fundamental freedoms under Article 27, I cannot see any that could be breached by simply asking the president to stay on his lane of constitutional amendment process. Similarly, the guarantee of his political rights, which are specific under Article 38.1, that is to make political choices, to be registered as a voter, and to vote by secret ballot in any election or referenda, have not been violated. The President's role in the constitutional review process has been preserved and is intact. The power to assent to a draft bill passed by Parliament and to request the IEBC to conduct a national referendum for approval of the bill are indispensable, are indispensable roles and essential cogs in the process. Apart from this, the president, as indeed any other voter, is entitled to support a popular initiative by signing it, and in fact, he did so in public. Indeed, nothing stops the president from campaigning for or against the initiative. For these reasons, I agree with the learned justices that to the extent that the president took certain steps and actions at the inception of the popular initiative process, as explained, the entire process was irredeemably flawed. I would, in the result, affirm the conclusion of the Court of Appeal. The third framed issue is on the second schedule to the draft bill. The number of constituencies today by dint of Article 89.1 stands at 290. The superior courts below were unanimous, and I am in agreement with them, that Article 89 is amendable in accordance with Chapter 16 to increase or even decrease the number of constituencies as proposed. The quarrel with the second schedule relates to paragraphs 1, 2, and 3 of the draft bill. After delimiting the constituencies for the National Assembly to 360, an additional 70 constituencies, the schedule sets out the manner and the period of review of the names and boundaries of those constituencies. This task, in terms of the Constitution, is donated to the IBC, the period being at intervals of not less than eight years and not more than 12 years, but on condition that any review must be completed at least 12 months before a general election of members of parliament. Furthermore, if a general election is to be held within 12 months after the completion of a review, the new boundaries cannot be used in that election. The second schedule went against Article 89 and all that I've said. By providing only for a single criterion, the population quota, as the basis for delimitation. 
it went ahead and distributed the newly created 70 constituencies to specific counties. It directed the IBC to delimit the boundaries on the new constituencies on the single criterion. It ignored the irreducible constitutional consideration and the existing scientific criteria in Article 89. And finally, it ignored the principle of public participation. In view of the foregoing, the inescapable conclusion is that I'm in, respectfully, in respectful agreement with the learned justices of the, High Co of the Court of Appeal that the second schedule to the bill was inconsistent with the Constitution, to which extent it was, a, it was correctly so declared. I would reject this ground of appeal. The fourth issue is on presidential immunity. In his petition for 26 of 2020, Isaac Aluchir versus Uhuru Migai Kenyatta, Mr. Aluchir asked the court to determine whether the president can lawfully initiate a constitutional amendment through a popular initiative process, whether the president can establish a steering committee and whether the steering committee had local standard to promote constitutional changes pursuant to Article 257. It also sought from the court to determine whether civil court proceedings can be instituted against the president during the tenure of office in respect of anything done or not done in excess of powers donated by the Constitution. Before us, while highlighting his submissions, Mr. Alochir complained that the two superior courts below made pronouncements that were wider than his original prayers, where he had only sought a declaration that the president had acted outside the functions of his office by unlawfully establishing the steering committee for which he ought to have been held liable. The Court of Appeal, having arrived at the conclusion that the president was not heard in his defense on allegations of breaching Chapter 6 of the Constitution, it was moot to consider whether the president was properly sued in his personal capacity, all the orders made against him in that capacity having been set aside. Consider, too, that both courts nullified the popular initiative on the ground that the president was not qualified qua president to initiate it, confirming that his actions, the Gazette notices, and so on, were official. Mr. Lochier's question was effectively answered, that no civil proceedings could be instituted against the president in his personal capacity in respect of his role in the proposed amendment. That would have been sufficient to conclude this ground. I cannot agree more that the route taken by the High Court and the Court of Appeal in responding to Mr. Lucier's contention was respectfully slightly overboard. Their determination of the matter in the manner they did has, however, presented a chance to this Court to express itself directly on the question for the first time. And Article 131 of the Constitution, the people of Kenya acknowledge the, immense, the immensity and the 
enormity of the office and declared that the president shall not hold any other state or public office except that of the president. Again, because of the exacting nature of those responsibilities, the Constitution grants the president immunity to enable him or her to discharge the functions enumerated above with as much freedom, flex, flex, flexibility, and peace of mind as possible. Because the president's actions while in office are actions of the state and not personal, any person who is aggrieved by the exercise of state power by the president has a recourse, first to challenge the action in court by naming the attorney general as a respondent in a judicial review application or a constitutional reference, or secondly, to institute civil action at the end of the president's tenure, because Article 143.3 holds the time from running for the wrongful actions committed while in office until the president leaves office. And of course, there is the option of impeachment motion, which may be moved in parliament against the president for engaging in gross violation of the constitution or of the law or committing a crime under national or international law or for gross misconduct. The Court of Appeal fell into error in the manner it construed Article 143 of the Constitution. And for these reasons, I would set aside the judgment of the Court of Appeal to the extent explained. The fifth issue was the place of public participation. The twin question before us are specific. The place of public participation under Article 10 in relation to the role of IBC under Article 257.4 of the Constitution and whether there was public participation generally in respect of the draft bill. Public participation today is a constitutional imperative recognized as one of the principles of good governance and accountability. A reading of Article 257.4, the role of IBC is to verify the, that the initiative is supported by, by at least one million registered voters upon receipt of the draft bill and the one million signatures. I've already, in the previous paragraph, found in agreement with the two courts in respect of the delimitation of constituencies that there was no public participation. However, in respect of Article 257.4, the role of IBC does not extend beyond verification that the initiative is supported by at least one million registered voters without going behind the process to inquire if the promoters did conduct public participation. It is the duty of the promoters to carry out public participation before or as they collect signatures. On their own volition and initiative, the promoters make a proposal to amend the Constitution. They must persuade one million Kenyans to vote in support of their venture to convince the assemblies and parliament about the prospects of the initiative and ultimately Kenyans in a national referendum. It is the promoter's burden. Was there public participation by the promoters and later by the assemblies and parliament? According to the secretariat, according to the steering committee, both houses of parliament, some county assemblies, Honorable Odinga, 
there was public participation prior to and in the course of signature collection. Whether or not there was public participation is a matter of evidence. The burden of proof is always upon him who affirms and not on the one who denies. The burden was upon those who alleged that there was no public participation to prove that assertion. Not a single person was presented to support the statement and to rebut the evidence in support of public participation. In support of public participation at the two levels, that is the promoters on the one hand, county assemblies and parliament on the other, there was sufficient evidence. For these reasons, I would set aside the determination of the Court of Appeal on the question of public participation. The sixth issue is on the composition and quorum of IBC. And it is a common factor that IBC was not fully constituted when the bill and the signatures were presented to it. Not fully constituted in the sense that it did not have all its full, did not have its full complement. The vacancy started with the departure of Commissioner Akombe, who fled the country and announced her resignation while abroad on 18th October 2017. 16th April 2018, Commissioners Mwachanya, uh, Dr. Kibiwot Kurgat, and Consolata Nkatha, who was the Vice Chair, held a press conference at which they announced their immediate resignation. By a Gazette notice of 14th April 2021, the President formally declared the four vacancies. The vacancies were not filled until September 2021, nearly four years from the date of those resignations, and one month after the decision of the Court of Appeal in this very matter. Article 250 of the Constitution is what may be called a provision of general application for the reason that it applies to all the Chapter 15 commissions. It declares that each commission shall consist of at least three um, members, but not more than nine. Section 5 of the IABC Act has fixed the membership at seven, the chairperson and six members. For the conduct and regulation of business and affairs of IBC Section 8 of the Act refers to the second schedule, which at paragraph 5 provides for a quorum of five members. I've discussed in my main judgment the amendments in, the, in, 19, in 20, 2017 to this paragraph, how it was challenged in the case of Katiba um, and the decision of Muita J. I have also considered the effect of the decision in Isaiah Kibiwot Kangwon case, considered too the CKRC report on the management of elections, the Hansard recording debate, recording the debate on the election laws amendment bill 2017. I have taken into consideration international best practices and borne in mind that IBC is a body cooperate with perpetual succession. The IBC, whether fully constituted at seven members or with the minimum number of three, is responsible for the formulation 
of policy and strategy, as well as providing oversight. The Secretariat and supporting units, directorates, divisions, and committees, being the professional and technical arm of the IBC, perform the day-to-day -day administrative functions of the Commission and implement the policies and strategies formulated by the commissioners. It is therefore a contradiction of terms for the Court of Appeal and the High Court to say in the same breath that the IBC was properly constituted with three commissioners but lacked quorum to transact business and conduct its affairs. I arrive at the conclusion that with three commissioners, the IBC was properly constituted, quoted, and competent to carry out all its constitutional and statutory duties. In the result, I would set aside the conclusion by the Court of Appeal that the IBC lacked the necessary quorum to conduct any of its business under Article 257 of the Constitution. The final framed question is on the referendum question. Whether Article 257.10 of the Constitution requires that proposed amendments to the Constitution be submitted as separate and distinct referendum questions or question was raised by Mr. Morara. Again, the details of my analysis of this issue is contained in my judgment where I have explained in conclusion why I think the issue was premature. Noting that the draft bill had not been returned to the IBC from Parliament, IEBC had been restrained by an order of injunction from facilitating and submitting the draft bill to a referendum or taking any, any further action to advance it, the nature of a question or questions to be framed by the IBC was not ripe. In the end, the Court of Appeal erred in failing to set aside the determination of the High Court on this issue for violating the doctrine of ripeness. I would set aside the majority decision of the Court of Appeal uh, to the effect that Article 257.10 of the Constitution requires the specific proposed amendments of the Constitution to be framed as question or questions. The details of what I've just rendered is in my main judgment. I thank you, Judge President. Uh, thank you, Justice Ohuko, for rendering your opinion. <clears throat> I will now call upon the Honorable Mr. Justice Renaura to read his opinion. Thank you, Chief Justice, colleagues, and counsel. Uh, my judgment is 149 pages. I will greatly summarize it for purposes of this uh, delivery. And there's a presumption that all counsel can read. So please do read it, because other Teachers of law tell me that counsel hardly read judgments these days. Please try and read these ones. Two, I have read the judgment of the Chief Justice and President of this court, and uh, I will adapt it for purpose of my judgment. I also agree with the reasoning and findings, save where I shall express myself to the contrary. In that context, when the Kenyan people gave themselves the Constitution 2010, it was a matter of public knowledge that certain parts of it would require amendments at some point in the future. There was however no agreement as to what these parts were, and it was left to a political class to raise a number of issues over the years that debatably required amendment. Third Way Alliance, for example, initiated the Punguza Mizigo Light in the Barrier Initiative at a referendum on a number of issues. That initiative failed. 
I have therefore taken into account the pleadings, the submissions, and my opinion on each issue is summarized as follows. On issue number one, I delved into the history, the genesis and history of the basic structure doctrine. Like my colleagues before me, I looked at Kesavananda at length and the history of Kesavananda and the findings in Kesavananda. I also delved in the history of Article 257 on amendments through a popular initiative as opposed to legislative amendment under Article 256. I specifically looked through the CKRC reports and in the final report, I reproduced sections at page 75 where the commission said this. A distinction should be made between entrenched and non-entrenched provisions of the constitution with a stringent mechanism being set up for amending the former entrenched provisions which should include supremacy of the constitution, the bill of rights, land, the judiciary, security, finance, and the system of government. The final report then came up with the following recommendations. I'll only pick on two. Recommendation number A, the new constitution should have some entrenched provisions. For example, human rights that parliament does not have power to amend. And Roman uh, D2, the entrenched provisions should include the procedure on amending the constitution itself, the provisions establishing the Republic of Kenya, the provisions of sovereignty of the people, the provisions on supremacy of the constitution, the Bill of Rights, the separation of powers, provisions in existence and powers of independent commissions and bodies. Those uh, proposals by CKRC are important because like Professor Migaya Ketch, Amikas Kure, I have said that the above recommendations are what morphed into chapter 16 of the 20th Constitution and by those provisions, the people attained the right balance between constitutional flexibility and rigidity and provided sufficient and strong safeguards against the culture of hyper-amendability that characterized the independence constitution. Chapter 19, in fact, of the Moas draft and chapter 19 of the Waco draft are also identical as to what is contained in chapter 16 of the constitution today. History has shown us that the people did not intend to immunize the 2010 constitution. To the contrary, they envisioned that they could amend the provisions of that constitution through exercise of secondary constituent power provided that the amendment procedure under chapter 16 is strictly observed. If the people wanted to entrench provisions other than those set out under Article 255.1 or to immunize any of the provisions of the Constitution, they would have done so expressly. It is therefore correct to say that courts should not, by judicial craft or innovation, impose hurdles to prevent the people from amending the Constitution provided that procedural requirements under Chapter 16 are complied with. In my judgment, I made reference to my own decision in Commission for the Implementation of the Constitution versus the National Assembly of Kenya and two others. I had counsel in this court say that that was the introduction of the basic structure doctrine by courts in Kenya. That is not anything near the truth. That judgment was addressing amendments by Parliament to Article 260 of the Constitution in order to remove the office of members of Parliament, members of county assemblies, judges and magistrates from the list of designated staff officers under that article. The dispute, much like a Savananda, related to the amendment power donated to Parliament under Article 256 and not 
the popular initiative processes under Article 257 as read with Article 255. In that judgment, I said, where the basic structure or design and architecture of the Constitution is under threat, this court can generally intervene to protect the Constitution. The threat was from Parliament and not the people. At the hearing of this appeal, I posed the question, what matters are outside Article 255 and which form the basic structure of our Constitution and which require exercise of the primary constant power? I got no satisfactory answer precisely because, in fact, there are no such matters. And Article 255 speaks for itself. The issues that are referenced from Parliament's amendment powers are set out in that article. I will not repeat them. These provisions cannot be implied because they are expressly provided for by this Constitution. I have also in my judgment uh, uh, separated amendments of a Constitution and Constitution making. The courts below fused amendment and Constitution making. If you look at what the people of Kenya did uh, 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 prior to 2010, civic education, public participation, constitutional assembly, and the referendum, they were making a constitution. They were not amending a constitution. So that any uh, attempt to fuse the two processes would be wrong. And I have said why in my judgment. I've also referred to other jurisdictions, to Taiwan, to Malaysia, to Singapore, to Israel. And I have said in my judgment that each country has taken a different approach on the basic structure doctrine because, in that, because each country has its unique circumstances and we must do the same. I've also looked at the Njoya case and I've explained why the Njoya case, the circumstances was made, the context in which it was made, and the reason why the Njoya case cannot uh, be relevant in processes under Article 257. And the, going to the uh, four sequential steps, I've said those, those processes are indeed uh, relevant and useful, not in amendment under Chapter 16, uh, but amendments, but making of the Constitution, should we as a country ever decide again to dwell with the present constitutional order and create a new one. And therefore, in summary on issue number one, my finding is that the basic structure doctrine does not apply in Kenya in the manner suggested by the first, the fifth respondents, and that the four sequential steps set out by the High Court and the majority of the Court of Appeal only apply when a new constitution is being made and not in any amendment process under Article 257. In addition, based on our history, the text of our constitution, and the context as outlined in my judgment, it is legislation such as the CKRC Act 2008 and, 2000, and 1997 that the four sequential steps should be anchored when and if the people ever want to change the present constitutional order. Those are my findings on issue number one. On issue number two, I have read the Chief Justice's uh, uh, judgment. I have looked into the history of Article 257. And if again, if you look at the CKRC reports, Article 257 was intended to be exercised by the common man and civil society, and not anyone outside that category. I have therefore no hesitation in holding that the President cannot and should not initiate amendments to the Constitution under Article 257. Like to your JA, I'm certain that popular initiative is people-centric, and while the president has certain rights as a citizen, there are certain other things that are, that are curtailed by the Constitution as regards him. The president cannot initiate the process by collecting one million signatures and crafting an amendment bill 
and then retired to await the same bill under Article 257.9 and assent to it as president. That is an absurdity that could not have been the intention of the framers. Neither can, the, can he initiate a bill under Article 256.5a and then under B, request the IEC conduct within 90 days a national referendum for approval of the bill and then retire to assent to it as a president. And therefore, my finding is that he cannot uh, uh, initiate uh, a popular amendment under Article 255. But I've said, uh, knowing the politics of this country, if the president has parliamentary muscle, he can then invoke Article 256 and initiate amendments through parliament. On the second limb of this question, I have disagreed with my colleagues. Uh, my finding is that there are two processes involved uh, in this whole uh, 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 situation. The first process is the presidential political process which ends with the creation of the steering committee. And then there is the process under 257.1, which is the process of the secretariat led by Junette Mohammed and Dennis Waweru. And I've said that if you look at 257 properly, the process begins with the signature collection and, um, and, creation, uh, and the drafting of the bill or suggestion. And that process was only undertaken by Dennis Waweru and Junette Mohammed and there is no place in which I have found in the record the role of the president. And therefore, on that narrow issue, I have disagreed with the Chief Justice. Um, on the uh, second schedule of the Constitution of Kenya, whether it's unconstitutional, um, I have uh, looked at Article 89.1, and I have said, you cannot, as uh, that was done by the, by the initiators and promoters, purport to amend Article 89.1 leave Article 89.2 to Article 89.12 untouched, and then purport to bring this amendment bill and create new constituencies without involvement of the IEBC and the people, uh, uh, especially those who would be affected by the, uh, uh, by the uh, creation of new constituencies. Boundaries of constituencies are a very emotive question in Kenya, and that is precisely why Section 89 is very elaborate as to the procedure to be undertaken when new constituents are being created. And therefore, for those reasons, and for the reasons given by the Chief Justice, I've agreed that uh, that schedule is unconstitutional. But I've said something a little more. Let those who wish to create new constituencies follow the process under 89. Do not ignore IABC, don't ignore the people, and if you wish to start the process within Article 89, you are permitted to do that, but do not go outside the limit and permits of Article 89. That takes me to issue number four, uh, proceedings against the President. I agree with the Chief Justice on this question, and I've also addressed the remedy of impeachment uh, of the President should there be a violation of the Constitution. I've also addressed my judgment in the High Court in the uh, Isaac Alucher case on representation of the President by the Attorney General when the, Attorney Gen when the President is sued in his personal name. I have said that the President cannot be sued in his personal name for violations of the Constitution, and should he be sued for whatever reason, then the proper respondent should be the Attorney General and not the President in his personal capacity. I had lawyers for the President pray for costs in favor of the President for having been properly sued in his private capacity in this case. While I agree with them, that such an order would have been efficacious. In fact, the nature of this particular litigation uh, being in the public interest, I would not grant the President orders of costs, uh, uh, with, despite my findings uh, in his favor. 
On issue number five, uh, participation, uh, public participation by the IEBC and the initiators and promoters of the bill. I have looked at the BAT case, a recent edition of this court. I've also looked at Justice Pauline Moya's judgment in the public versus county assembly of Kirinyaga, and I've agreed with the judge that in processes under uh, 257, there are certain rules attributed to both to IEBC and to the initiators and promoters. Looking at the stage at which the IEBC was stopped, or the whole process was stopped, it is very difficult for me to say that public participation was not sufficient. In fact, the two most important public participation elements in a popular initiative are voter education by IEBC and uh, popularization of the bill by the promoters. None of these processes had been reached by the time the High Court stopped the process. A last issue on this point is this. Gatembu Cairo and Tuyot raised a fundamental question. Why are we as a country still struggling with, with lack of a legal framework to govern processes under Article 257? There is no law on collection of signatures. There is no law verification of those signatures. There is no law on how county assemblies should pass uh, the amendment bill, the processes by parliament despite the standing orders, the receipt of the bill by the president, transmission of the bill to the president, the referendum, I have said, it is about time to avoid the confusion that I'll address shortly as I address issue number six and seven, that we need a law. And so I agree with Justice Tuyot and Justice Cairo that this law is absolutely necessary. And therefore, the second schedule, in my mind, is an exception, is, is uh, 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 I'm sorry, the public participation processes uh, uh, were properly undertaken, save for the second schedule, where I have said, that it's unconstitutional for the reasons that I've given. Articles 88 and 250 with regard to composition and quorum of the IABC. I have looked in my judgment at the Katiba case by Chacha Muita J. I have looked at the uh, Isaiah Biwot case by uh, Frida Okwan J. I have looked at Article 250, Sub-Article 1. I have taken into account the very lucid submissions by Esther Angawa regarding Article 88.5, and I have said that to my mind, looking at the law as I understand it, IABC was quoted at all material times, its processes were lawful, and therefore a contrary finding would, in my view, be in error. There was a second issue raised by Ms. Kituku regarding nullification of the laws. Well argued as the point was, and lucid as arguments were, I've declined the invitation to address that question, because once I found IABC quoted, other matters are irrelevant. The last issue is issue number seven uh, on the uh, proposals whether proposed amendments should be submitted as separate and distinct referendum questions. Like the Chief Justice, I have looked at the law of ripeness and mootness, I have looked at the law, of, uh, the law on justiciability, and I have come to the firm conclusion, like Justice Tuyot, that this question was premature. Uh, IABC had not had the opportunity to exercise its mandate as the body to conduct the referendum, to draft the question or questions, and, and I've said only this as regards uh, uh, that mandate. Section 49 of the, of the Elections Act and Section to Article 257 do not sit well together. And I've asked IEBC to, as they reconsider this question, to look at Section 49 of the Act and Article 257, harmonize the language I've shown why, in my judgment, why there's a problem with, with uh, that, uh, that issue. 
and only then would any party uh, with a dispute go to court once the IEPC has determined the matter within its mandate. Once courts start to take off the mandate of independent commissions, we shall walk into a minefield. And therefore, uh, in conclusion, summary of my findings are as follows. On the basic, stru basic structure is my finding that the doctrine as initiated in the Casamanada case has not attained wide acceptability and cannot certainly be applicable to Kenya, noting our history, context, and constitutional text. The four sequential steps identified by the High Court as necessary in, a moment in an amendment process are also not applicable, saving the creation of a new constitutional order, which is not the case in this dispute. Number two, on whether the President can initiate a popular initiative to amend the Constitution Article 257, it is my finding that he cannot, but I have said also that in this particular dispute, he did not. On whether the second schedule of the Constitution is unconstitutional and purported to limit boundaries without the input of IBC, without amending Article 89, 1 to, to 12, without involving affected persons and the public at large, I have held that is indeed unconstitutional. Can civil proceedings be issued against the President during the term of office? I have said no. And should he be pursued, then the proceedings should be against the Attorney General, and any remedy for a suit directly against the President should lie in costs awardable to the President. On public participation, at the time the High Court stopped the process, I cannot find reason to fault either IABC or the initiators and promoters, with the exception of the second schedule, which are found to be unconstitutional for inter alia lack of public participation. On the quorum of IBC at all material times, I find that IBC was correct and all its undertakings were lawful. On the question whether a referendum, single multiple questions, we put the people by IBC, I find the matter was premature and was not right for determination. On costs, the public interest exhibited in this matter will meet the conclusion that each party should bear its cost. My reasons in detail are contained in my judgment which you shall get copies of. I thank you, Chief Justice. I thank you, Council. Uh, thank you, Honorable Mr. Justice Renaura, for rendering your opinion. I will now call upon Lady Justice Jokindongo to deliver her opinion. Uh, thank you very much, Chief Justice. I will proceed to summarize my judgment on some issues. I will be brief. Others, I will interrogate them a little bit more. Issue number one, is the basic structure doctrine applicable in Kenya? In order to determine whether the basic structure doctrine is applicable in Kenya, there is need to define the term doctrine under international law and establish whether the basic structure doctrine is indeed such a doctrine and if it is applicable here. I recognize that there are differing opinions on the definition of a legal doctrine, but to my mind, the basic structure doctrine as presented by the parties to us is a judge-made law emanating from the municipal court, which is the Supreme Court in India in the Kesavananda case. That basic structure doctrine has been upheld and relied on in subsequent decisions in India and I note that there are few jurisdictions around the world where basic structure doctrine has been applied, while in others it has been rejected. It is my considered view that the basic stru structure doctrine as presented by the parties does not constitute a widely adhered to illegal doctrine. 
It is my observation that the basic structure doctrine has been both applied and rejected. I have listed the countries in which that has happened, and therefore um, it is my considered opinion that the states only constitute a very small percentage of countries in the world that have attempted to apply or have applied the doctrine. Furthermore, there have been no pronouncements made at the international level, no international case law on the same. The only available cases are from domestic courts at national jurisdiction, and therefore it cannot be said that the basic structure doctrine has attained the status of a general principle under international law, and it cannot be applied by this court as a general rule of international law as contemplated in Article 2.5 of the Constitution of Kenya 10. The above notwithstanding, is the basic structure doctrine as presented by the parties applicable in Kenya? It is my considered opinion the answer to this question can only be deduced by our constitutional past. Kenyans stressed the fact that they needed a constitution that had entrenched provisions on certain aspects, was not too simple to amend, and one that required their participation in terms of amendment. The final report of the Constitution of Kenya Review Commission captures these sentiments uh, where the people's voice is summarized. And these sentiments made it into our current constitution where chapter 16 of the constitution is unequivocal on how to amend the constitution. It is therefore uh, my position that it was the intention of the drafters of the constitution to protect or entrench the specific, specified 10 matters in article 255.1 by stipulating their specific amendment procedures. If the drafters of the constitution intended to entrench or protect any other provisions or deem them eternal or unamendable, they would have expressly done so. On my part, I do not consider any article in the constitution unamendable or constituting eternity clauses. A textual reading of the constitution confirms this view. It is evident, therefore, that the constitution itself expressly provides an inbuilt amendment procedure for any anticipated amendments. Consequently, it is unnecessary to import the so-called basic structure doctrine into Kenya. I briefly turn to the issue of constituent power, and I find that the constituent power is a power that cannot be limited by any pre-existing rules, even if such rules purport to regulate replacement of the current constitution. It is also my finding that the four sequential steps are not expressly provided for and cannot be inferred from Article 257 of the Constitution. As such, those steps cannot be a mandatory requirement when there is no law providing for the same. Moving on to the next issue as to whether the President can initiate changes or amendments to the Constitution. The Court of Appeal upheld the High Court's finding that the President, for as long as he held office, could not, as an ordinary citizen, move constitutional amendments through a popular initiative on the ground that the same route is intended for ordinary citizens. The appellate judges found that the amendment bill was not a popular initi initiative, considering that the process that, that, that culminated in the same was a process that was led and driven by the executive, the political elite, as opposed to the people of Kenya. Some respondents um, have urged that um, the proposals by the BBI task force could have been taken up by anyone else, by any promoter, but not the president himself. Having perused carefully through the judgments of the superior courts and also through the Constitution of Kenya, I find this proposition is untenable 
for several reasons which I shall expound upon. However, before I expound on my views, I must state I'm rather disturbed and concerned by the way the superior courts framed their issues for determination. The High Court framed its issue three for determination and used words not in the constitutional text, attached meaning to them, and made determination on them. At paragraph 388 of its judgment, the High Court framed the issue as follows. What is the constitutional remit of amendment of the Constitution through a popular initiative? This issue further twins into two sub-issues. Who can initiate a popular initiative under a constitutional setup? And two, the BBI process, is the BBI process of initiating amendments to the Constitution in conformity with the legal and constitutional requirements? And five, was the President in contravention of Article 73.1 of the Constitution for claiming authority and purporting to initiate constitutional changes through BBI? Similarly, at the Court of Appeal, Musinga, President of the Court of Appeal, listed the following issue for determination. Whether the President of Kenya can initiate the process of amendment of the Constitution as a popular initiative and who the initiators and the promoters of BBI initiative were. The learned judges of appeal unanimously agreed with the High Court that the BBI amendment process under Article 257 of the Constitution was intended for ordinary citizens. Further, they stated that this is a citizen-conceived, citizen-initiated, and citizen-driven process. A lot of time and attention was dedicated to the meaning of certain words. This would not be problematic if these words were found within the body of the Constitution to interpret an appropriate meaning to them. However, interpretation of words not in the Constitution bring confusion. In my view, a constitutional court must confine itself to interpretation of the letter of the Constitution, and if any word or phrase is read in, it must be clear that this is the rule of inter interpretation at play. The words I am concerned about include initiate and initiator, citizen initiated and private citizen. None of these words appear in Articles 255 to 257 of the Constitution. The High Court in particular went on a spirited approach to expand on these terms and paid little attention to the words that actually appear in Chapter 16 of the Constitution, which are the words promoter, popular, and initiative. In my opinion, the learned judges introduced a non-constitutional actor called an initiator who performs a non-constitutional action, initiate, when the Constitution only provides for a promoter whose definition is vastly different from an initiator. As such, the emphasis was laid on the actor initiator. This, in my opinion, fundamentally changed the import and meaning of Article 257 of the Constitution, and I am of the opinion that the correct approach, approach should have been to define what a popular initiative is and who can be or who is a promoter of a popular initiative. The superior courts ignored the fact that the drafters of the Constitution used certain words and went in to read in words whose effect is to change the entire meaning of the constitutional text. The tool of reading in is only applied where the framers have left out a word or phrase from a provision. Further, this reading in must be supported by other connected provisions of the Constitution. I peruse carefully all the judgments 
looking for proper reasons for the decision to exclude the president from the amendment process, and I cannot find a logical, constitutionally-based explanation for the conclusions and findings of the superior courts on this question. I can only term it as interpretational misadventure, if not judicial constitutional overreach or judicial invention. As such, the learned judges erred fundamentally on this, and in my considered view, which I shall now expound on, uh, I, I will... I will specifically look at the constitutional amendment process as provided for in Chapter 16, the interpretation of constitutional silences, the exercise of the authority of the people under Article 1, the authority of the President under Article 131 and 132 and 141.3, and the political rights under Article 38. The Constitution 2010 provides for two processes through which it can be amended. These are the parliamentary initiative and the popular initiative. For the popular, popular initiative, promoters, after collecting the signatures of at least one million voters, submit the signatures and the bill to IBC, who sends the bill to the counties. The bill must then be approved by a majority of the county assemblies and then by, approved by a majority of the houses of parliament and if Parliament passes the bill, it is submitted to the President for assent. It then goes to referendum where the majority of voters must support it. Article 257 does not define popular initiative. Nevertheless, I am of the opinion that at the heart of construing the meaning of popular initiative, it lies with the numbers. It is proper to lay emphasis on the numerical value of at least one million registered voters who have to sign, the numerical value of at least half of the counties who have to vote to support, the numerical value of two-thirds of the votes in both houses in Parliament, and the numerical value of half the votes cast by registered voters at the referendum. It is the numbers that count. It is the numbers threshold that the promoter must meet. It is the numbers that makes the initiative popular. In the context of Article 257 of the Constitution, a promoter needs at least one million re registered voters to support their proposals. That's what triggers the IEBC verification process. It is therefore my considered view that the popular initiative is primarily about numbers that the promoter must attain and not about who the promoter is or who the person who brings the amendment is. As such, the Superior Courts made a fundamental error by determining that popular, the word popular relates to who moves the amendment and not the numerical threshold that the promoter has to attain. So for example, um, in 2016, uh, the court uh, of Kenya bill were, were, were not able to, to achieve the um, one million signatures and it collapsed, it collapsed through the operation of the law. It is important to note also that Section 257 does not in any way specify who may move a constitutional amendment process by popular initiative. It does not contain an explicit bar against any person promoting a constitutional amendment by popular initiative. It specifically provides what actions the promoters are tasked with in order to begin and complete an amendment process, but it, it does not state who the promoters must be. The unsaid is influential in constitutional law. Some matters of constitutional relevance sometimes are left unaddressed. Sometimes, knowingly or knowingly, the drafters of the Constitution may underappreciate how much power rests in the silence around the text. 
Constitutional silences are functional, functional and inevitable, and enabled by a lack of very strict textual restraints, constitutions have the capacity to grow with time, experience, societal needs, and changes, thus allowing successful constitutions to thrive. This Supreme Court has played a crucial role in, in interpreting silences in the Constitution, but it must be cautious, though, so as to avoid judicial legislation. This court must interpret silences judiciously. Taking recourse to this doctrine, therefore, how do we interpret the silence as to who can originate a pop popular initiative amendment? In my considered view, the first step leads us directly to the constitutional text itself. Article 1 of the Constitution is categorical, that all sovereign power belongs to the people of Kenya and shall be exercised in accordance with the Constitution. Further, in that article, sovereign power may be exercised either directly or through their democratic elected representatives. The National Executive enjoys delegated sovereign power under Clause 3 of Article 1 of the Constitution, and according to Article 36.1 of the Constitution, the President shall be elected by registered voters in a national election conducted in accordance with the Constitution. In addition, Article 1 of the Constitution elaborates the tenets of a functioning republic anchored in the concept of libertas populi, which defines the characteristics of a functioning republic. It envisions a system that has responsible citizens who exercise their rights de democratically and consciously. A free respublica is the highest value of all for citizens. Article 1 preserves the exercise of the actual legal authority of power, which is exercised by the people directly or through their democratically elected representatives. From the foregoing, there is no doubt that the president is a democratically elected representative of the people who, under Article 1, can exercise delegated sovereign power of the people. Indeed, this is one of the ways in which constituent power is, is exercised under our Constitution. And therefore, I am confounded by the fact that the superior courts address the constituent power of the people at length, but for whatever reason, fail to take into account that the president is a directly elected representative of the people, and he can exercise delegated power on their behalf. Furthermore, it is a fundamental right of the Kenyan people to elect their representatives and that those so elected to speak on their behalf. To limit the ability of an elected representative to speak, to act, to work on behalf of his or her electorate is itself a limitation of the people's political rights under Article 38 of the Constitution. Such proposition would amount to limited republicanism, limiting the extent to which people exercise their powers either directly or through their elected representatives. More poignantly, however, limiting the powers of the people donated to the elected representatives reorganizes the architecture of the Constitution's order of delegated governance. It is not in dispute that the president bears an elevated status by virtue of his office. The president has additional roles and obligations in comparison to the ordinary Kenyan. In addition, Article 132 of the Constitution mandates the president to safeguard the sovereignty of the public, promote and enhance unity of the nation, promote and respect the diversity of the people and communities of Kenya, and ensure the protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms and the rule of law. Article 132 2.1c of the Constitution stipulates one of the many mandatory functions of the President.
The President must, once every year, report in an address to the nation on all measures taken and progress achieved in the realization of the national values referred to in Article 10. In my considered view, the President is not limited as to those measures he can take to undertake to under, that the, he's not limited as to the measures he can undertake in the exercise of his functions under Article 132. The said measures could constitute a policy, statutory, or constitutional frame. Clearly, in promoting and enhancing the, pub, the clearly in promoting and enhancing national unity, the president can promote constitutional amendments through popular initiative. This would qualify as a measure taken under Article 132 on which progress achieved can be reported. It is directly within the four corners of the Constitution of Kenya. I am convinced that the President takes, that when the President takes measures in the exercise of his functions, including a proposal for the amendment of the Constitution, he is bound by the oath prescribed by the Constitution and which he swears when he takes office to act in the best interests of Kenyans and not to undermine democracy. One need not worry about the President overstepping because the parameters in the Constitution are sufficient to rein him in. How can I claim this so boldly? This is informed by our constitutional history. When one looks at the history of constitutional making in this country, it is clear that one of the intentions of the drafters of the Constitution was to discard parliamentary monopoly over the constitutional amendment process and to make it more inclusive. Kenya's journey to democratic constitution was arduous, taking into account that most of the amendments made in the taking, taking into account most of the constitutional amendments made in the first President Kenyatta's era. In the first President Kenyatta's 15-year reign, he oversaw 16 amendments. President Moy, in his 24-year presidency, oversaw 14 constitutional amendments. Both presidents were members of parliament and used parliament to amend the constitution in a manner that excluded participatory democracy. The people were not involved in any way. By 1992, and because of this, all key institutions, the judiciary, parliament, public services, security forces, and the provincial administration were instruments of authoritarian control. Concentration of power in the president was one of the factors that pro prompted demands for a new constitution. And the 2010 constitution aimed to curb dictatorship by parliament in the amendment process. Kenyans wanted to have a head of state who would not whimsically amend the constitution. They wanted to limit the powers of the constitutional amendment by the head of state, but not to take it away altogether. In other words, the intention was to make it difficult, but not impossible, for a president to make a constitutional amendment. This is the mischief that the framers of the constitution sought to address. In my considered view, therefore, there is no historical evidence that the drafters of the Constitution intended that the President be excluded from the popular initiative amendment route or that it be limited to a specific class of people to the exclusion of others. If anything, the resultant very expansive Chapter 4 on the Bill of Rights in the Constitution of Kenya 2010 proves otherwise. The President enjoys all constitutional rights and freedoms like any other Kenyan. He is first and foremost a Kenyan citizen by birth. A president does not lose his or her political rights under Article 38. He or she does not cease to be a registered voter by virtue of ascendancy to presidency. There is no law 
Pursuant to Article 24 of the Constitution, which is the limitation clause that limits the president from enjoying political rights under Article 38, especially that of campaigning for political cause, which in my view includes constitutional amendments. In addition, trusting citizens with public office does not in any way muzzle them or take away their rights as provided in the Bill of Rights. Article 27.1 of the Constitution provides that every person is equal before the law and has the right to equal protection and equal benefit of the law. Additionally, equality includes the full and equal enjoyment of all rights and fundamental freedoms, and the President, like all Kenyans, is obligated to respect, uphold, and safeguard the Constitution. If any Kenyan has the right to initiate a popular amendment to the Constitution, while respecting, upholding, and defending the Constitution, so too does the President in his official or personal capacity. It would be restrictive, unjust, unprogressive, and unconstitutional to limit that right. At this juncture, I find it prudent to comment on the submissions that the President is excluded from promoting changes to the Constitution by popular initiative because he can do so through Parliament. According to Article 256 of the Constitution, the Constitution can only be amended through a parliamentary initiative under, under Article 256 of the Constitution, the Constitution is silent as to who can introduce a bill into either of the Houses of Parliament. However, the composition of Parliament is clear and the membership of the National Assembly is provided for under Article 97.1 and that of Senate under Article 98.1. The President is excluded as a member of Parliament. In other words, the President is not a member of Parliament and by parity of reason. He cannot introduce a constitutional amendment through a parliamentary initiative. Apart from making the finding that the president cannot initiate constitutional changes, the Superior Courts also found that state organs similarly cannot initiate such changes. However, it is important to note that all state organs and state officers form part of the national executive, county governments, the legislature, the judiciary, independent commissions, and independent offices. Accordingly, then, all holders of such offices under Article 1 also exercise delegated power from the people and must perform their functions in accordance with the Constitution. If those functions require measures or policy actions that would require constitutional changes, then they must, then they must be able to use their de delegated authority to exercise those functions. To suggest otherwise would result in an absurdity. For example, let us assume the Chief Justice as the Chair of the Judicial Service Commission wishes to make proposals on judicial reforms. And she puts together a draft bill and presents it to the IABC as a promoter. If we were to follow the findings of the Superior Courts, the Chief Justice would find herself barred from proceeding. However, if her Chief of Staff or the Deputy Chief uh, Registrar were to take the same document, it would be acceptable. Similarly, if the Speaker, as the Chair of the Parliamentary Service Commission, wished to make some proposals, constitutional proposals, around parliamentary reform, the, ju the judgment of the Superior Courts would prevent him from taking such amendments himself, although the Clerk of the National Assembly and the Head of the Legal Department in Parliament can do so. The result is leadership without authority. In a democratic government, it is an untenable absurdity.
In conclusion, I'd like to say on this point, the popular initiative, a popular initiative amendment is not a preserve of specific persons. Any Kenyan can originate and promote the popular initiative amendment, and the people, as defined in the Constitution, also mean their representatives exercising donated sovereignty. As such, it remains an inclusive process and not a process that excludes and that empowers every person to propose constitutional amendments. Having found that the president and the state organs can promote a popular initiative, who then was the real promoter in the impugned uh, bill in the dispute before us? The perusal of volume 34, page 226 of Morara Omoke's record of appeal, reveals the replying affidavit of Dennis Wawero, whereby he swears that he and Junette Mohammed are the co-chairpersons of the Building Bridges to a United Kenya created and mandated with the task of initiating a constitutional amendment process and unifying Kenyans, among other things. From the record, IABC's press release acknowledges the receipt of the Constitutional Amendment Bill 2020 and the 4.4 million supported signatures. There is also a letter from IABC which uh, spe specifically talks of the promoters as Dennis Wawero and Junette Mohammed. It is therefore my conclusion that the promoters referred to in this bill are Dennis Wawero and Junette Mohammed. The record speaks for itself. Further, having perused the Constitution of Kenya Amendment Bill 2020 in an B of the report of the steering committee of the implementation of building bridges to a United Kenya Task Force report of October 2020, and the Constitution of Kenya Amendment Bill 2020 dated November 25, 2020, and the promoter's bill that was forwarded to county assemblies and parliament, I make observations that the bills are vastly different in terms of content and proposed amendments. For instance, while the steering committee annexed your bill does not propose amendments to articles 82, 89, 1, 96, 3, 115, 4, 168, 188, 1, 202, 204, 206, 207, 228, and 250 of the Constitution, the promoter's bill does. The bill as presented by the promoters to the IABC does not contain some of the amendments contained in the steering committee bill, namely amendments to articles 91, 200, and the repeal and replacement of article 218, insertion of 218A, amendments to articles 221, 223, and the repeal and replacement of articles 246. In addition, there are new articles 108A, 153A, 206A, which only appear in the promoter's bill and do not appear in the committee steering bill. There are also major differences in the preambles, in the first and second schedule, which are substantially different. So they are two different documents. None of the superior courts examined this fact, leading them to the erroneous conclusion that the BBI steering committee, the BBI task force, and the promoters were one and the same. Neither Jeanette Mohammed or Dennis Waray were part of the BBI steering committee or the BBI task force, both of which were gazetted by the president. Their seemingly in, in named initiative, of which their part has no legal nexus with the two gazetted entities. It is clear in correspondence between IABC and the promoters that they engaged the IABC as individuals and were not representing any entity, including the president. 
As I conclude on this issue, I fault the Superior Courts for making declarations of unconstitutionality without specifically itemizing the article of the Constitution that was either denied, violated, infringed, or threatened. For instance, the Superior Courts found the BBI process of initiating amendments to the Constitution, to the Constitution unconstitutional. Which specific article of the Constitution it offended or threatened, it is still unclear. The Superior Court ought to have dissected the issue to specific actions that were taken against the constitutional provisions against which they could be measured. Instead, it would appear that the focus was on actions, actors, and processes which are not within the constitutional ambit and, in particular, which are not to be found under Article 257 of the Constitution. In summary, my finding of the issue is the President did not initiate the amendment process uh, in dispute. He was not the promoter of the popular initiative under 257. I now move to the third issue, which is uh, whether the second schedule uh, to the Constitution of Kenya bill is unconstitutional. Before ascertaining the unconstitutionality of the second schedule, it is important to interrogate the legal standing of the impugned bill. In Black's Law Dictionary, a bill is defined as a legislative proposal offered for debate before enactment. Article 109 of the Constitution says that Parliament shall exercise its legislative power through bills passed by Parliament and assented by the President. In addition, Article 116 of the Constitution talks about the coming into force of laws and speaks of the bill passed by Parliament, assented in, uh, by the President, shall be published in the Kenya Gazette as an act of Parliament within seven days after assent. Accordingly, a bill does not become law until it is passed by the legislature, and the President completes the legislative process by formally assenting or giving his consent to the bill. Articles 2.4 and 165 of the Constitution contemplate scenarios where laws are unconstitutional and can be declared so. The Constitution does not provide for pre-enactment mechanisms to determine whether a bill is constitutional or not. So in this instant matter, uh, the judges of the Court of Appeal did declare the second schedule of the constitution unconstitutional but considering that the constitutional amendment bill had not yet been promulgated into law i find fault with the superior court's finding on the basis that they did not have jurisdiction to interrogate the constitutionality of a bill before it's been passed into law i reiterate it's only after a bill has been enacted and attained the status of a law that the courts acquire jurisdiction to entertain the same but before a bill is enacted into law or an act of parliament, the courts do have jurisdiction to determine the same for lack of ripeness. Now, having found that there is the issue of lack of ripeness, what can this court do? Can it proceed to address the same? And if so, under what circumstances? In uh, the case of Aramat, this court did state that uh, this court's jurisdiction is to develop rich jurisprudence that develops and respects Kenya's history and traditions and facilitates its social and economic growth. 
and that the Supreme Court is the guardian of the Constitution and the final arbiter. And the same principle was carried, uh, was stated in the, the, the matter of Speaker of Senate and several other cases uh, of this court. In light, and I've laid out the decisions, in light of all those decisions above, it is my considered view that the issue before us is one that cannot be ignored. However, there needs to be a test to assess whether indeed, despite the, the, the lack of ripeness, whether this court can actually address the issue. So this court needs to evaluate the, fit, the fitness of the issue for judicial determination. And secondly, assess the hardship to the parties and the general public if judicial relief would be denied at this stage. In other words, is this the kind of question that can be determined only when ripe without occasioning any hardship to the parties or general public? I've then laid out uh, a number of uh, cases and um, writings around the fitness test on issues of ripeness and how one can assess whether an issue is fit uh, and uh, despite the issue of ripeness. I do find, having, gone, having, having, having laid out uh, the issues around the test, I do find that in this particular uh, situation that this court can apply the test and we can address the issues despite, despite, the, lack, despite the lack of ripeness surrounding the bill. Thus, I have perused the second schedule uh, to the Constitution of Kenya Amendment Bill and noted that um, it seeks to introduce an amendment to Article 89.1. However, the schedule that is attached then purports to amend Articles 81, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, but it, it purports to do this on its own without an accompanying proposed amendment to that section. In the UK Court of Appeal decision, Mohan versus Her uh, Majesty's uh, Senior Coroner for Oxfordshire, Lady Arden observed the follows. It would be contrary to drafting conventions for a schedule to be used to make what should clearly be what has a change or have, which, what, what will have some change or of consequence in the law. It is improper for a schedule to have matters of principle and nothing should be placed in the schedule to which the attention of parliament should be particularly directed. Flowing from the above, I am persuaded that the second schedule to the Constitution Amendment Bill, even if it were to be enacted into law, cannot amend Article 89 of the Constitution. It would be contrary to drafting conventions if the schedule of the Constitution was to propose an amendment to a substantive article of the Constitution on its own. What ought to have happened is that there needed to have been a standalone provision that brought the substantive amendments to Articles 89, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Therefore, the second schedule to the Constitutional uh, 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 Amendment Bill conflicts with the substantive provisions of Article 89 of the Constitution, and it is therefore unconstitutional. On issue number four, on the, whether the President can be sued 
for performing functions of his office. I will be brief. The rationale, for provide, the rationale for presidential immunity comes from the enormous responsibility bestowed upon a president as a single source of executive power. Therefore, immunity from legal proceedings is, design, is designed to, per, to permit a president to just discharge his obligations with as much autonomy as possible without anxiety that court proceedings would probably disturb, humiliate, or encumber him from focusing on his duties. This protection is also envisioned to shield the dignity of the office of the president and not him personally, particularly because he makes far-reaching and sensitive uh, decisions. I've considered the party's pleadings and submissions, and it's obvious that the point of diversions is whether or not the president is immune from constitutional violations during his tenure of office. It is not contested that the president appointed the building bridges, the BBI task force to document and recommend practical administrative reform processes that will build the country's long-lasting unity and implement uh, modalities for each identified area. The president has a unique position in the constitutional scheme and as already discussed in um, issue number two, he has the responsibility to promote and enhance the, un the, the unity of the nation. It is my uh, finding, therefore, that if the president, no, I'm sorry, that's, uh, that's not where I want to go. It is my finding that the president in appointing the BBI task force was discharging his constitutional mandate, promoting and enhancing uh, uh, the unity of Kenya. And consequently, there was no basis for, con for concluding that the president's actions con contravene the constitution to deprive him of immunity provided for under Article 143 uh, of the Constitution. There is no evidence tabled before the trial court to dispute this and, and that his actions were not within the four corners of his constitutional mandate of promoting and uniting the country. One may ask what recourse is available to a party who is aggrieved by the presidential actions or omissions that grossly violates the Constitution and is outside his constitutional function. And Article 145 provides any member of the National Assembly supported with at least one-third of members the ability to move a motion of impeachment. And that is how uh, to deal with it. To this end, um, I do disagree with Ju uh, Tuyot, uh, Justice Tuyot on his conclusion that Article 132 leaves it open for the President to be held personally liable once out of office for any act or mission not done in office. And my finding is that the President's actions or omissions entitle him to immunity as provided for in under 143 of the Constitution. I'll move quickly to the next issue, which is public participation. And uh, this is what I'll say. To determine whether the Constitutional Amendment Bill 2020 was subjected to public participation within the parameters of Article 257 of the Constitution, we need to examine the steps and inbuilt mechanisms that are provided for therein. In my opinion, the steps are as follows. The submission of the bill and the minimum one million signature of registered voters. Then, the verification of signatures by IBC. Then, the consideration of county assemblies then the consideration of the House of Parliament and then the referendum. So when we go to the first step, uh, Mr. Omoke uh, urged us that uh, the, the promoters ought to have conducted uh, public participation prior to the collection of signatures. 
But on this, it is my finding that uh, the collection of signatures is not a constitutional process under Chapter 16 of the, um, uh, uh, under, under, under Chapter 16. And the, the promoters are not under any obligation to conduct public participation prior to the collection of signatures. In order to assess whether the public participation has been conducted in accordance with the specific provision of the Constitution, the test which a court ought to apply is against a particular provision. So to my mind, Article 257 of the Constitution does not first provide for the collection of signatures, but for the submission of a bill with at least one million signatures. This, in my opinion, is the first step. And then second, it does not make provision for public participation during the collection of signatures. Having found that Article 257 does not uh, expressly provide for public participation during the collection of signatures, the standard to apply when assessing the same, if any, will be lower than, the law, uh, than where the law is expressly provided for public participation. I am unable to agree with the Court of Appeals findings that there was a constitutional requirement to conduct public civic education at the point of collection of signatures. And I cannot concur with Nambuya's finding that uh, there was need to give the public uh, the reports, the bill in Kiswahili, Braille, sign language before the referendum. Having found that the constitutional amendment process commences with the submission of signatures and that the constitution is silent on pre-bill procedures, it is my considered opinion that the promoters were not required to take public participation at this juncture. From the foregoing, it is my presumption that when a supporter signs in support of the draft bill, then such a supporter must have read, understood, and agreed to the proposed as amendments, asked questions about any unclear proposal, and taken the decision to be bound by his or her signature. It therefore goes without saying that the promoter, before urging his, the support, a support of his or her proposal, must talk to people or must have made his bill understood by the people. I disagree that there was no, uh, I disagree with the court's conclusion that there was no public participation during the collection of signatures. And moving on to the next step is to consider whether there was public participation at the county assemblies. I take judicial notice that in compliance with the Constitution and the County Governments Act, county assemblies have standing orders with set guidelines on public participation. And in that regard, a bill in the county assembly, having been read for the first time, is committed to the relevant uh, select committee, where it takes into account views and recommendations from the public and reports back to the county assembly. I've looked at the record, and it's my conclusion that none of the petitioners before the High Court specifically alleged that any of the county assemblies failed to conduct a public participation as per the standing orders. Similar, similarly, there is a similar process uh, before the two houses of parliament, and there is no evidence that this public participation did not take place. It is my finding, therefore, that there was public participation at the county uh, level and at the House of uh, Parliament. The final step in assessing public participation under Article 257 is at the referendum stage, but we had not reached there. Lastly, on this question of public participation, I believe it is time for the legislature to urgently provide for the parameters of public participation. I recommend it does so through a statutory enabling framework 
Such legislation should provide precision and clarity on the various processes involved and address issues like mode, extent, stages, proof of public participation, funding, responsibilities of who does what and when. Does the IBC have the requisite program to conduct uh, business? It is my finding that it does. And I'm sorry. And I have then come to the, the two conflicting decisions in the High Court uh, which were raised by parties. It is my considered view that even though horizontal stare decisis is not binding on courts of equal jurisdiction, the trial courts need to follow the decision of other judges of the same court unless there are compelling reasons to depart from the same. This is to ensure consistency, certainty, predictability, and sound judicial administration. In this context, having found that paragraph five of the second schedule of IBC Act is constitutional, it is my finding that it was justified for the trial court in the Isaiah Biwat case to depart from the Katiba case. Furthermore, in this present case, I'm not persuaded that there existed compelling reasons to want the trial court in this case to depart from the Isaiah Biwat case. I have then uh, laid out um, my reasoning around uh, retrospective and constitutionality and perspective and constitutionality. And I think that I will, I will leave that for parties to read when they read uh, my full judgment. Finally, on the last issue, I do agree that the issue is not ripe like the, the Chief Justice has stated. However, once again, uh, the fitness and hardship test which I developed uh, when I was uh, writing issue number two, I think does apply. And I have made findings that uh, there can only be one question at referendum and that the provisions of section 49 are unconstitutional. They, are, they are unconstitutional. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, the Honorable Justice Joaquin Dongo, for rendering your opinion. It is now my pleasure to invite the Honorable Mr. Justice Wanjara to deliver his opinion. Thank you, uh, Chief Justice and President of uh, this court. Mine is uh, a summarized delivery of my judgment because uh, I know that, or I expect counsel uh, to, read, uh, to read the judgment. Uh, but even if you don't read, I know that out there, there are Kenyans who will read it and, and contribute to the growth of jurisprudence in our country. And so I begin by also acknowledging the fact that uh, I have perused uh, the lead judgment by the president of the court, and uh, I'm in agreement with how the contents of the background have been captured, and the submissions by the parties uh, have been paraphrased. And so 
this enables me to Im immediately go into uh, the consideration of the seven issues that we formulated for ourselves with your concurrence. Uh, but before I do that, I must also pay a, my gratitude to our colleagues at the High Court and uh, the Court of Appeal for their gallantry and, and, and industry uh, which they invested in this enterprise. Uh, it's due to those efforts that uh, at this stage I can say we now find ourselves in the, in the fog of the season's end, for those of you who read beyond the legal text. Uh, and now to the first question, whether the basic structure uh, doctrine is applicable in Kenya, and if so, to what extent. And I begin by acknowledging the fact that never uh, since the promulgation of the Constitution of 2010 have our courts been confronted by so polemical, elastic, and indeterminate notion as the so-called basic structure uh, doctrine. And, and, and it all began with uh, when a group of distinguished uh, citizens aggrieved by what they perceived was an imminent overthrow of the Constitution, approached the court, the High Court in particular, uh, seeking its intervention uh, to stop uh, that overthrow. And I've also, like my colleagues, addressed the origin of now what is being called the basic structure uh, doctrine. And I don't think I need to go into uh, the stages, the historical stages, uh, of how this uh, notion, in my view, uh, sprouted and continues uh, 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 sprouting in parts of uh, the world. Uh, I think that uh, my colleagues who have spoken have done a sterling job, and I do not intend to retrace the history of this uh, uh, doctrine. But I do ask, how did we find ourselves enmeshed in this kind of uh, theorizing? Because right from the High Court, and now up to this court, what we appear to be doing when addressing this notion of the basic structure of the Constitution is really a preserve of uh, legal and social science scholars. It is hardly uh, an occupation of court of law, not to mention an apex court of law uh, uh, like this one. So how did we find ourselves in this uh, 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 process? It's because there can be no doubt uh, that in approaching the court, the petitioners had been aggrieved by what they perceived as an imminent threat to the Constitution posed by this amendment bill. But instead, uh, what they should have done, in my view, they would have been, they would have laid down a prayer in which the alleged, uh, the fear of violation of the Constitution and in support thereof, they were at liberty to deploy 
uh, any arguments, propositions, and analytic tools to convince the court that indeed uh, such a declaration was warranted. But instead, what we have here is a fundamental departure from a long-established uh, uh, tradition of invoking the jurisdiction of the High Court. Uh, the petitioners instead presented the court with a theoretical construct, uh, a fait accompli, whose declaratory validation uh, they sought. And unfortunately, the High Court elevated this proposition uh, as designed by the petitioners into an issue for determination even at a preliminary level. And later they would be joined by our colleagues at the High Court. But be that as it may, now that the applicability of the basic structure doctrine in courts has nobled into a ubiquitous inquiry, we at the Supreme Court may not, without stirring justified indignation, disregard it altogether. And so, I have been compelled, uh, just as my colleagues have been, to go into uh, an exegesis of what then is the anatomy of this basic structure uh, doctrine. I have asked myself whether indeed it is a doctrine, juristically uh, speaking, I have come to the conclusion after not just a soul searching, but serious uh, uh, thoughts that what we are faced with as a basic structure doctrine is no such uh, doctrine. Instead, it is what I consider as a school of thought, uh, uh, or at best, a heuristic device, which a court of law, when faced with the question as to whether uh, a proposed constitutional amendment is of such a nature as to destroy, destabilize, or distort the constitutive authority of the Constitution, a court of law faced with such kind of question can deploy this heuristic uh, device uh, in its effort to answer the question. But I find no fault with this rich and diverse array of opinions so eruditely crafted uh, by some of our finest in the judicial system, the legal profession, academic institutions, and from far afield by way of Amici Curie. Uh, indeed, uh, we who are called upon to adjudicate upon the affairs of men and women in their relations with one another and between them and the state are all the more privileged when served from such uh, a tantalizing menu of ideas uh, by the bar and the bench. Yet my discomfiture, ladies and gentlemen, with the manner in which this issue was brought before the High Court in the first instance still persists. And it bears repeating that in the ordinary scheme of things, a petitioner ought to approach the courts seeking relief on the basis of a real or perceived violation of the Constitution. But to begin by seeking a declaration there exists, that there exists somewhere in our psyche, beyond and above the Constitution, 
a doctrine that is nonetheless applicable in our legal system and which we have to take cognizance of even as we embark upon the determination of whether certain actions or omissions have violated the Constitution is to lead judges onto a terrain uh, hitherto uncharted. Uh, it is my firm view that this prolonged debate has been agonizingly stripped of the discipline of judicial inquiry, uh, first through what I consider to be the conceptual profligacy of elevating a notion to a legal doctrine and embellishing it with an extra constitutional force of law, and then quite inexplicably attempting to locate the minted doctrine into the text of our constitution. So on the one hand, uh, we are treated to what I call lyrics of contextualism, while on the other we are strung with thuds of textualism. And so the orchestra, in my view, goes on, which, if not choreographed, could unleash an interpretative odyssey, or maelstrom, if you like, attempts to wriggle therefrom by those to come after us, which could end up in theatrical ignominy. All this while, scant attention has been paid to what I consider a majestic directive principle in our Constitution, a tool of analysis that faced with such questions as the ones I have posed, a court of law must deploy. And I make reference to Article 259 of the Constitution, the marginal note of which reads construing the Constitution or construing this Constitution. And instructively, this provision is preceded by another, uh, which I consider as a defensive armor gifted to our vigilantes of democracy and the rule of law. And this is Article 258.1. And so I go on and on that by the end of the day, in answer to the issue as so formulated, I arrive at a conclusion to the effect that the so-called basic structure doctrine is not applicable uh, in Kenya. I go on uh, to consider uh, the extent if it is so applicable, but having arrived at that conclusion, I then uh, limit myself to some of the statements and pronouncements that were made by the two superior courts, that is to say, uh, the High Court uh, and Court of Appeal. In this process, I arrive at a conclusion that contrary to what was uh, decided in error, if you ask me, there is no con provision in our Constitution that is unamendable. The question for us to ask is whether the Constitution of 2010 has within it comprehensive provisions, directive principles, and normative prescriptions which are capable of withstanding any efforts from whichever quarter of abrogating it, distorting it, or fundamentally changing its equilibrium. That is the question that we should ask. And when I asked that question, I arrived at an answer in the affirmative. So that leads me to the next issue, whether the president can initiate changes 
or amendments to the Constitution, and whether a constitutional amendment can only be initiated by Parliament through the parliamentary initiative. Uh, in agreement uh, with uh, my colleagues at the High Court and Court of Appeal, I am of a firm opinion, having read uh, the relevant provisions regarding that issue, and in context um, of the opinion uh, that a president cannot initiate uh, what is re referred to as a popular initiative under Article 255 and Article 257 of the Constitution, because those articles talk about an initiative to amend the Constitution by the people. And the word people here is not an ornamental one. It is a serious expression of what forms what we consider a social uh, contract. And both the High Court and Court of Appeal held that such an initiative is reserved for what they call the, uh, the common uh, but before uh, answering this uh, uh, question, I had to ask myself as to what really constitutes uh, a popular uh, initiative. In my view, a proposal to amend the Constitution through a popular initiative comes into being when there is a felt need uh, for such an amendment by the people uh, but care must be, however, taken, as advised by Professor Migai Akech in his amicus brief, not to anjikunize, no, but that's my, my expression, not to anjikunize every stage of constitution making or amendment uh, in his comprehensive analysis of the history of the constitution making in Kenya. The good professor, rightly in my opinion, decries the tendency to underestimate the role by what played by what he calls the political elite in the making of the constitution of 2010. And why do I agree with him? Because in my view, a democratic polity such as ours comprises of a complex mix of the ordinary, the elite, and the philosopher each of whom is entitled to meaningfully participate in the popular initiative of constitutional amendment. Therefore, this felt need to amend the constitution may find expression in various fora, such as our institutions of higher learning, public symposia organized by civil society, religious and community-based organizations, if you remember the Ufungamano Caucasus, and even public rallies, as long as those rallies are uh, not organized under the influence of the political class, especially the elected one. And these symposia and caucuses and rallies would have as their main objective the need to firstly clarify the rationale and content of the proposal for amendment, and secondly, to sensitize the general public and harness their support for such a proposal. At the end of the day, these felt needs will have undergone such repetition 
such notoriety, such refinement, and would have acquired such stability and coherence as to be capable of being formulated into a general suggestion or bill as stipulated in Article 2572 of the Constitution. At no stage is very clear to me is the role of the president, qua president, contemplated by the provisions of that article. It cannot have been lost on occasional observer for a painful history that it was the imperial presidency that mutilated the independence constitution through unchecked amendments to such an extent that at the end of the day, this country had lost any pretensions to democracy, rule of law, human rights, or social justice. And by the early 1990s, the Kenyan people were terrified, tormented, and dehumanized lot, deprived of any sense of self-actualization in the manner in which they were governed. It was from such despondency that the people would rise to demand a new social contract, a new order that would not only restore their dignity, but also present the executive, prevent the executive arm of government, if you like, read the president, and to a certain extent the legislature, from reversing the new equilibrium, from taking them from the paradigm shift to which they had cutted uh, themselves. And so to this question, I have no hesitation in holding that the president cannot initiate a popular initiative. That takes me quite quickly as to whether indeed uh, the president did initiate uh, this popular uh, initiative. Uh, it's on record via the Gazette notice number 514 dated 24th May 2018 that the president appointed a task force named Building Bridges to United Kenya Task Force or the BBA task force, if you like. Uh, the, this task force was composed of eminent Kenyans whose mandate it was to address the nine key challenges facing the country. And these challenges have been identified in a memo of understanding signed between uh, the President and Right Honorable Raila Odinga. Thereafter, the President, Vide Gazette Notice Number 264, published on 10th January 2020, appointed a steering committee on the implementation of the Building Bridges to United Kenya Task Force report. One of the terms of reference of that steering committee was to propose administrative, policy, statutory, and constitutional changes that may be necessary for the implementation of the recommendations contained in the task force report. It is out of which this steering committee that uh, we now have uh, the Constitution of Kenya Amendment Bill of 2020. I, on my part, find, although the High Court later described the task force as an unconstitutional outfit, I, on my part, find that there was nothing unconstitutional in the appointment or composition of either the task force or the steering committee by the president. Uh, what remains is whether the president can be regarded as having initiated the process uh, that culminated into 
uh, the bill that we now have. And in conclusion, I have stated that taking everything into consideration, all the stages, all the processes that led uh, to the bill, uh, I find it difficult to distance the president from the involvement and the initiation of uh, the popular initiative. Therefore, I find that uh, the president did actually originate this uh, initiative. The conclusion deriving from this I shall return to in my final conclusions. And now, next is whether the second schedule to the Constitution Amendment Bill 2020 is unconstitutional. Uh, both the High Court and Court of Appeal found that schedule unconstitutional. I have considered the reasoning by the two superior courts. I have looked at the relevant law, and I come to a similar conclusion uh, that uh, this second schedule to the Constitution of Kenya Amendment Bill 2010-2020 is actually unconstitutional. Fourth, I consider whether civil proceedings can be instituted against the president in person or a person performing the functions of the office of the president during his tenure of office. And I know I have taken into cognizance the submissions by the Attorney General urging the court to find that such proceedings cannot be instituted uh, against the president or a person performing the functions of that uh, office. I also know that there are those who have strenuously uh, opposed the Attorney General's submissions and have argued that such immunity is limited, so limited that the president can on occasion be sued where or if he violates the Constitution and if he violates any other law when he is not acting in his capacity as the president. And I have, having carefully considered those arguments, I find considerable difficulty in appreciating the rationale or basis upon which first the High Court found that notwithstanding the clear and unambiguous language in Article 1432 of the Constitution, that the President can still be sued in his personal capacity for acts or omissions alleged to be in violation of the Constitution. Why did the High Court introduce the phrase only protected? And then turning uh, to the finding by the Court of Appeal, I find similar uh, difficulty because it is clear that should the President engage in an act or omission that is violative of the Constitution, there are constitutionally recognized uh, pathways through which such violation can be put uh, right. And I have mentioned and discussed them in the body of my judgment. But a more profound legal reason for presidential immunity in both its private and official capacity is to be found in Article 1433 of the Constitution, which provides that where provision is made in law 
limiting the time within which proceedings under Act Clause 1 or 2 may be brought against a person, a period of time during which person, the person holds or performs the functions of the President shall not be taken into account in calculating the period of time prescribed by that law. And what is this law referring to? It must be referring to the law of limitations. And then why would the President be denied the benefit of limitation of actions precisely because the President cannot be sued in his private capacity during the tenure of his or her office. And I also state that once a president, always a president, until he or she vacates the office, because you cannot be a president today and tomorrow you are not a president so that you may be so sued. That brings me to issue number five, the place of public participation under Article 10 vis-a-vis the role of IBC and whether there was public participation. And in response to this, after a serious uh, analysis, I find that there was no obligation on the part of the IBC at the time it embarked upon the verification of signatures to satisfy itself as to whether there had been public uh, participation before the bill and signatures were transmitted to it. I do not find anything in the Constitution that obliges the IBC uh, to carry out that function. But what about the promoters of uh, the, popular the popular initiatives? What about uh, Dennis Waweru, Mr. Waweru, Honorable, Honorable Junet, who have defined themselves as promoters? Were they not supposed to undertake uh, meaningful public participation? The argument that I see here, again, as such a proposal, is that the process begins, the process of popular initiative, begins with the collection of signatures. And I do not uh, agree with that proposition, because before you collect signatures, there must be something you are offering the people you are taking to the people either that general suggestion or a draft bill. And if you are seeking their signatures, surely the people must understand the contents of the bill to which they are appending their signatures. I have read the contents of the affidavit sworn by Honorable Waweru, uh, the contents of which state that there was a comprehensive and robust process of uh, uh, consultation. But the contents of that robust consultation are not uh, clearly stated. And so I'm concluding that when it comes to the promoters of the popular initiative, I do not myself think that they undertook sufficient or meaningful public participation under, uh, within the meaning of Article 10 of the Constitution of 2010. And now this brings me to the interpretation of Articles 8.8 and 2.50 of the Constitution with respect to the composition and quorum of the IABC. This one has been thrust to us because somewhere along the line it 
the petitioners did allege that at the time it undertook the verification of signatures, the IABC lacked the requisite quorum uh, to be able to constitutionally undertake uh, that task. And then I have also looked at uh, the history of uh, the, legislat the, the legislative form that prescribes the quorum of IABC. I've looked at the contents of the at Article 251 of the Constitution, and I come to this conclusion, that if, as indeed we must conclude, that at the time the IABC undertook the verification of signatures, it was constitutionally and properly so uh, constituted. How on earth can we then say that it lacked quorum to undertake the tasks for which it was properly constituted? And then my attention has been drawn to the contents of uh, paragraph 5 of Schedule uh, 12, I think, to the IABC Act, which sets uh, that quorum at five. And I'm simply saying that as between a constitutional provision, you cannot use uh, the provisions of a statute to override the majesty of a constitutional provision. And having so said, I find that the IBC had the requisite quorum to conduct the verification of signatures and any other task that the Constitution requires it to, to undertake. And finally, I come to this vexed question of whether uh, the interpretation of 25710 of the Constitution entails that all or requires that all specific proposed amendments to the Constitution should be submitted as separate and distinct referendum questions. I had no difficulty in uh, disposing of this particular issue because it was not ripe as rightly observed by my colleague uh, Toyota J.A. of the Supreme Court. And I'm not the kind of person to engage in abstract exercises. Because if we did that, then we would be also encouraging Kenyans, as indeed they have done to us in this basic structure uh, in Broglio, uh, to come with abstract questions and expect us to expend valuable judicial time disentangling uh, the same. So what are my conclusions? One, the basic structure doctrine is not applicable in Kenya in the way and manner in which it has been formulated. Because it's no such doctrine, neither does it have a force of law juridically so understood. I've said it is a heuristic device. The four sequential steps of civic education, public participation, and the rest are not also applicable to the process of constitutional amendment envisaged under Articles 255, 256, and 257. Such steps, uh, and not necessarily in that order, would become operative in the event of a seismic constitutional moment which dictates that the people must exercise their primary constituent power to make a new constitution or reestablish the constitutional order. And three, the president cannot initiate or activate any constitutional changes through a popular initiative process 
as envisaged under Articles 255 and 257 of the Constitution. For uh, the President actually did uh, initiate uh, the proposed constitutional uh, amendments and the effect of that, I believe, should be able to come out in the final disposition of this uh, dispute by this court. Uh, the second schedule to the Constitution of Kenya, Amendment Bill 2020, is unconstitutional. Civil proceedings cannot be brought or instituted in any court of law against the President or a person performing the functions of that office in their personal capacity during their tenure of office in respect of anything done or not done in the exercise of their powers under the Constitution. And seven, the IABC is not under any obligation to ensure that the promoters of a popular initiative have facilitated public participation before transmitting the resultant bill uh, to it. But I also say that in this particular instance, no meaningful public participation was conducted by the promoters of this bill. Nine, the IABC had the requisite quorum at the time it undertook and completed the verification of signatures. And finally, the interpretation of Article 25710 in the manner in which the issue has been formulated is not right for consideration not just by this court, by any other court in this country. Uh, before I sign off, my mind races back to those three days in this tent uh, during which I and my colleagues here sat patiently, pensively and attentively listening to the impassioned pleas from the bar so commandingly assembled not that this was the first time I was finding myself having to endure the perorations of counsel. Some of them experienced jurists and others not so senior. But it was such a moment when the basics of a basic structure were basically spewed unto us with such a plumb hitherto unseen, save during the hearing of a presidential election petition. Uh, what we were told, however, uh, I, I, I also uh, remember that it was on such occasion that we were reminded that our colleagues at the High Court and Court of Appeal, the colleagues at the High Court had built a foundation. And those ones at the Court of Appeal had constructed a wall upon it. And that now it was our turn to paint uh, that wall but we were not told with which colors we were to undertake this alluring task. I also remember being urged to roar emotion. Uh, but who could fault counsel for invoking our hallowed symbol of nationhood? Yet at that moment, I could not help but cringe for the sound of a roar of a lion in the wild uh, stirred in me images of a terrifying the terrifying language so beloved by our politicians, the language of tsunamis, of earthquakes, volcanoes, war and thunder. And that is why I cringed. 
And then I remembered that not so long ago, this court had in one of its judgments, and really in true oracular rendition, or so I thought, decreed as follows. But it does appear, as my colleague, Judge Lenaola, here apprehended, counsel do not read the judgments of this court. And now I am forced to read this decree to you so that even if you don't read it, it shall be act in your mind. And this is what this court said at that time. What of the argument that this court should not subvert the will of the people? This court is one of those to whom that sovereign power has been delegated under Article 13C of the same constitution. All its powers, including that of invalidating the presidential election, is not self-given nor forcefully taken, but is donated by the people of Kenya to dishonestly exercise that delegated power and to close our eyes to constitutional violations would be a dereliction of duty, and we refuse to accept the invitation to do so, however popular that invitation may seem. Therefore, however burdensome, let the majesty of the Constitution reverberate across the lengths and breadths of our motherland. Uh, let it bubble from our rivers and oceans. Let it boomerang from our hills and mountains. Let it serenade our households from the trees. Let it sprout from our institutions of learning. Let it toll from our sanctums of prayer. And to those who bear the responsibility of leadership, let it be a constant irritant. So I say no more. Thank you, Chief Justice. Thank you very much, Justice Wanjara, for that rendition. I now request the Honorable Mr. Justice Ibrahim Mohammed to deliver his opinion. Uh, thank you very much, Honorable CJ, uh, the President of the Supreme Court of Kenya. Uh, every judicial Every judicial officer or judge has his style of delivery. Uh, but when there is a, a pressure of time, uh, you elect how to do it, uh, considering the question of time also. The art of brevity does not come or are, are not bestowed on everyone. So you might find that I may take a bit longer on some issues. But to save time also, I may summarize uh, I may give a summary of my findings in some of the issues and only and also the dispositions on each issue uh, while in others I, I may give some more elaborate uh, uh, explanation for my conclusion and disposition. The Honorable Chief Justice and President of the Supreme Court of Kenya, Honorable Lady Justice Martha Kobe, has in the lead judgment aptly captured the history and background of the appeals, appeals before us. She has also pertinently set out the written and, and oral submissions by all counsel, as well as the embassy, for which I, I thank her on, on our behalf. I see need, no need to replicate or rehash the same. Uh, I refer to the seven issues which were framed by the court on the 9th of November, 2021. 
the seven issues, I'll not read them out. Thank you, thank you. I'll not read them out uh, as uh, they, are, they are already on record and has be, have been referred to by all my colleagues. I'll, I'll also refer to them uh, one after the other. I find myself substantially in agreement with the arguments and conclusions by the Honorable uh, Chief Justice Kome, President of the Court, on some issues. Just as well, on some, on some, I'm of divergent views. I render my opinions and pronouncements on the issues as delineated by the Court. The first question, the first question is uh, regarding the basic structure whether it's applicable uh, in Kenya, and if so, the extent of its application, whether the basic structures uh, of the constitution can only be altered through the primary constitution power and what constitutes the primary power. In answering and determining these questions, I trace the history of what is, a basic, what is the basic structure and what it comprises of in the framework of a constitution. I trace that history globally from the Federal Republic of Germany to India, the US, France, then also to the other countries like Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Bangladesh, Uganda, and many more. Some of these states, particularly uh, the ones which came to consider later the basic structure, some were disinclined initially, they are, uh, that's the courts in those countries, but later some of them adopt, adopted and accepted the, the say doctrine. I finally came to the applicability of the say doctrine in, of basic structure to Kenya. I followed our journey of con constitutional making from the CKRC to the Bomas Conference. During the state process, Justice Rigera, as he then was, grappled with the question of the basic structure of our repeal constitution. He concurred with the majority uh, pronouncement in the case of Kesavananda that parliament did not have the power to alter the basic structure of our constitution. This was in the case of Timothy Joya and others versus CKRC and another. The application of the doctrine arose in the case, also arose in the case of Patrick Ouma Onyango and 12 others versus AG 2008. The court consisting of uh, Nyam, Justice Nyamo, Wendo, and uh, Mkule uh, found and declared that the basic steps in constitutional making they, they declared uh, the basic steps in the constitutional making. Then there was the case of Commission for the Implementation of the Constitution versus National Assembly of Kenya, uh, 2013, where uh, Justice, Honorable Justice Lenola, as he then was, analyzed the question of the basic structure of the Constitution, although that was not uh, really a direct issue, and also uh, he, uh, the issue of its applicability was not before the court. I just want to refer that it was considered uh, and it was, it was a known principle before, before this case, which is before us. 
Then there was a case of Priscilla Ndululu uh, Kibuitu and another versus AG 2015, wherein the three judge bench, Mumbi Ngugi and Odunga, held that some amendments under Article 255, 1 or, or Article 257, can only be done with the involvement of the citizens by way of referendum. They, they, were, they, were, they relied on the sentiments expressed by Honorable Ringera J in the Njoya case. Uh, the three judges, uh, I'll refer to paragraph, to, to what they said. Uh, I'll go directly to that, what they said. We, they say that uh, we agree. We agree with the sentiments expressed by Ringera J in Joya II that an amendment that upsets the basic structure of the Constitution could not be effected by Parliament without involving of the people. In a country like ours, which has a history of disrespect for the sanctity of the Constitution, the jurisprudence propagated in the Joya, Joya II case was necessary. This may explain why the people of Kenya, aware of the frequent and frivolous amendments to the repealed constitution provided in Articles 255 of the 2010 Constitution, the, uh, and, and I refer to the contents of Article 255, uh, where strict conditions were given for before any amendments uh, uh, could be carried out, and I don't have to refer to that. Uh, uh, it is clear from the above cited provision that there are amendments that can only be done with the involvement of the citizens by way of a referendum of uh, Article 255.1 or popular initiative involving at least 1 million registered voters, Article 257.1. So it means that uh, the, the judges themselves in this case, referring to the basic structure, identified uh, Article 255 as containing uh, uh, principles of the uh, of basic structure. Even where a parliament has been mandated to amend the constitution, it can only do so after the amendment bill has been subjected to public discussion, Article 256.2. The voice of the people is a voice that cannot be ignored when it comes to the amendment of the 2010 constitution. We wonder, and we, they continue, we wonder whether in light of the provisions in the in, in 2010 constitution, the proposition that parliament cannot amend the constitution in a manner that may result in the distortion of the basic structure, again they use the word basic structure, still has a place in our jurisprudence. However, this is not an issue that has been taken up and, 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 and uh, with us, and we will say no more about it. So I'm just giving the background that these uh, issues have been before the court, but not directly. But now, in our case, it is directly before us, and uh, we have to deal with it. Uh, there has been a discussion and contestation of uh, uh, whether this basic structure is a doctrine or even a principle. 
Uh, an uncontentious example of popular doctrine, for, inst for instance, is that of the separation of powers in a tripartite form of separation comprising the executive, ju uh, judicial, judi ju judiciary, and legislative arms of government. We credit the French jurist with a long name, Charles Louis, Louis de Secondant, Baron de la Bred, uh, at de Montesquieu. I'm not very good in French. Or, in fact, I'm not, I don't know French at all. Uh, or Montesquieu, uh, or, or read, or I read him in history, simply referred to as Montesquieu, as the father of the doctrine. This doctrine is embedded in our legal system uh, by, di by direct reference uh, in, in various, and, and we have adopted it even in the structure of our constitution. However, even as we make reference to the doctrine of suppression of powers today, it is not to say that the doctrine has not, been, has not evolved since 1748 or that it is only Montesquieu who discussed it. In Kenya, we have not only laws. However, that incorporation was with some modi modification to suit our peculiar circumstances such as the addition to the independent commissions and offices. Yet in, in doing so, we have not explicitly provided for it or even defined the doctrine of separation of powers in our laws. Still, it is evident that we have applied it. So the question of the basic structure as the doctrine, whether, what is it? Uh, what does it encompass? Does it, uh, is it applicable in Kenya? This is the duty we have, and uh, we cannot just dismiss this. Uh, it is many times it has been said that, uh, that this doctrine of basic structure, uh, uh, the ori origin came from the case of uh, Kesavananda, 17, 1973, whereby the majority of seven to six, the court in India, Supreme Court held that the article uh, 368 of the Indian Constitution does not enable Parliament to alter the basic structure or framework of the Constitution. And, and uh, there's a quotation uh, or, or citation by uh, two judges, uh, Justice Hedge and uh, Justice Mukherjee. Uh, but uh, but uh, after tracing the history, we find that actually these uh, principles did not emanate from India. It emanated uh, uh, from, from the scholar, it, uh, a colleague referred to that, the scholar uh, called, uh, there's a Professor Conrad of Germany. He gave us a, a talk uh, in some Indian university, and this idea was captured or was uh, uh, captured by some, uh, uh, some lecturers and some professors, and finally it reached the ears of uh, some judges who, uh, in the case of uh, Golaknath versus State of Punjab, 1647, uh, uh, who applied those principles, and, and that was the first foothold in India, uh, that case of Golaknath. Uh, even though the court then did not accept any limitations on Parliament's power to amend the Constitution, so. Uh, 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 regarding the, the Germans, it's not, easy, it's not easy to see why a German jurist would propagate implied limits to amending the, uh, uh, the constitutional powers. 
Article 79.3 of the Basic Law of the Federal Republic of Germany, adopted on 8th of May 1949, explicitly bars amendments to provisions concerning the federal structure and to basic principles laid down in, in Articles 1 and 20 on human rights and democratic and social setup. The Germans were healing from the Nazi era, and it is for that reason that the framers of the basic law sought to create a constitution that would, save, that would safeguard against the emergence of either the Weimar Republic's overly fragmented multi-party democracy or the Third Reich's authoritarianism. And uh, there, there have been arguments uh, in, in, in various cases in support of this. Now, uh, in, in France, the same thing happened. Uh, where uh, uh, a scholar called Schmidt was uh, 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 where a scholar called Boris Hario, a professor of administrative law and constitutional, constitutional law, published two constitutional treatises, and uh, the difficult name it, it has, I can't read it, setting out the history of implied limits on constitutional amendment. Now, uh, coming back to uh, uh, I'm, I'm going, I'm referring now how this has been discussed in Kenya. Uh, Yaniv Rosna in his article on constitutional, constitutional amendments, the migration and success of a constitutional idea, uh, the America, in the American Journal of Comparative Law, drew attention to the, de to the debate of the first American Congress. More particularly, the, the debate that took place uh, on August 1789. So there's a lot of discussion in the U.S., and I, I don't have to go to the cases. Everything is in, in that judgment. I've gone rather into some detail. Uh, legal doctrines and principles are often traceable to a particular school of thought, and more specifically, to a certain scholars who sought to elaborate them. The importance of this is to address the contestation regarding whether the basic, uh, basic structure doctrine was a creature of judicial craft, or even whether the courts are capable of creating doctrines. This is not to make a case for incorporation, or rather reading into our laws. All doctrines and legal principles are in existence. From this, however, it is evidence that the doctrine of basic structure was not invented by the judiciary in India and some of the other countries. Uh, it has been submitted that the doctrine, the basic, uh, the doctrine of basic structure has yet to gain universal experience. And for that reason, we are asked to find that it is not applicable. I do not think it is necessary that before application of a doctrine of, or legal principle, the same must have universal application. I say this because not all legal doctrines and principles are universally uh, uh, applicable due to the differences in legal systems, such as the civil and common law. This is also because of our, our unique peculiarities, such, such as, states due, as states due to our historical, cultural, and social systems. My thoughts on this are further fortified by, the, by our constitution, read together with the Judicature Act, Cap 6, Laws of Kenya, which allow us to apply the doctrine that are in line with our laws, more so if they assist us better to interpret and apply them. 
so I've, I've, there is a lot of uh, reading uh, material which I've referred to. So basically, directly, is the doctrine. Is the doctrine of basic structure applicable to Kenya? The basic structure of doctrine is not only new to our, is not entirely new to our jurisdiction. Much like the other countries, Kenya has had opportunity to grapple uh, to grapple with the, uh, with the doctrine of basic structure in our circumstances. Uh, during our journey of constitutional making, where the CKRC appointed in November 2000, the commission chaired by Professor Yash Palgai convened the National Con Constitutional Conference for discussion, debate, amendment, and adoption of this report and draft bill, famously dubbed the Bomas Conference, due to uh, due to taking place, uh, or, or which, were, which was taking place at the Bombers. The Bombers Conference was convened and adjourned three times, out of which a draft, a draft was amended and adopted by the acclamation by the conference, sitting in plenary on 23rd March 2003, then handed over the constitution to the Kenya Review Commission. However, before the conference was adjourned, there was a number of challenges to the validity or legitimacy of the entire constitutional review process and uh, its outcome. One of which was the, the case that I've referred to, Timothy Joya and others versus CKRC. Uh, the applicants sought inter alia, that was 2004. The applicants sought inter alia a declaration that certain provisions of the Constitution Review Act transferred, diluted, and vitiated the constitutional power of the people of Kenya to adopt a new constitution. The court held that the new constitution needed to be ratified through a national referendum as the right to a referendum was a fundamental right of the people in exercise of their constitutional power. Ringera J, who is now retired, who was in the majority, concurred with the pronouncements of Kesavananda that parliament did not have the power to alter the basic structure of our constitution. And there's a citation here, which I don't have to go through, where just and which means our courts uh, recognize the principle of, uh, in my, this is my submission, principle of uh, basic structure. Uh, application of the doctrine again arose in the case I referred to, Patrick Ouma Onyango. One of the issues that arose was whether parliament in its limited delegated role had the power to debate, alter or amend the bomber's draft constitution which was the product of the view of the people. It was, also, it was also questioned whether that interference by parliament had the effect of elevating the members of national assembly above the people of Kenya as sovereigns. The court consisting of Nyamo, Wendo, and Mkule held, and I think, uh, I, uh, yeah, I think I should refer to it very quickly. Um, we further find and declare that what we, that what will give purity to the process is the enactment of the pro pro proposals as a constitution by the people in the referendum. It is the enactment by the people which gives purity and validity. Yes, they are the touchstone tass of validity, the people. The applicants in their final written submissions did concede that constitution power cannot, cannot be uh, restrained. We exercise judicial power on behalf of the people and we cannot restrain for them in making their choice. These are three judges 
of our courts speaking uh, for the people of Kenya. We find and declare that the basic steps in constitution making are one, popular consultations, two, framing of the proposals, three, referendums or uh, constitutional assembly elected and mandated. We find the challenge process has satisfied all the three steps. We find and declare that the process is not flawed. In our view, the real judges of the process are the people of Kenya in view of the past involvement with the process as outlined. I'm not going to go through all that. There's a lot of material which I'll let you read when you get this, uh, uh, this judgment. Uh, and and uh, basically, uh, it is to show that Kenya itself, due to, due, due to the uh, constitution-making process that led to 2010, uh, people discussed in depth uh, the history and the problems that Kenya went through, the hyper-amendments uh, hyper that we had gone through, and the result was uh, the 2010 constitution, and in particular, uh, chapter 16, and uh, articles 255, 256, 257, which uh, I, I will be persuading you in, in this, in this uh, uh, opinion that contains the basic structure uh, that, that uh, supposed to protect uh, the people from amendments by even the delegated uh, power, which is uh, parliament. Uh, in the, after the promulgation of the Constitution in August 2010, there was a case of the Commission for the Implementation of the Constitution versus National Assembly of Kenya, where the National Assembly, by the Constitutional Amendment Bill 2013, sought to amend Article 260 of the Constitution in respect of the de definition of state, state office. Uh, I, I'd already discussed that. Then there's the case of uh, uh, Priscilla uh, Kivuitu. Uh, then we have uh, uh, various cases. Uh, Attorney General versus Randun Zai, uh, whereby the court held that in view of the foregoing, the appellant's contention that the respondent's agenda of succession is unconstitutional, has no basis in law. The respondents have a constitutional right to demand succession but that can only be done within the conference of the Constitution as stipulated under Articles 255, 256, and 257 of the Constitution. Now, in all these cases, the applicability of the basic structure doctrine was not a substantive question of the courts. Uh, the, the courts were asked to determine, unlike the present one. So in this case, uh, through my proposals here, which I, I, I don't wish to, to go through. And I, I have told you the, the art of brevity is, is not donated to everybody, uh, and I'm not one of them. So I'll let, I'll let you read. Uh, but I would say, I'd refer to uh, what I've said here. That, uh, that there, there was this decision by Justice Mativo in the Third Alliance case, Kenya versus another versus head of public service, Joseph Kinua, and others versus Martin Kimani, and others. Uh, in that case, Mativo 
Justice Matibo uh, said, uh, uh, he, he, he referred to this doctrine and he stated as follows. The command in Article 259 is instrumental in, in shaping the constitutional jurisprudence in this country. Call it by any name, basic structure, or whatever. But Article 259 provides the manner in which the constitution is to be interpreted to maintain its fabric, which cannot be dismantled by any authority created by the uh, constitution itself, be it the parliament, the executive, or the judiciary. Uh, Couched uh, in this doctrine are a few crucial aspects. Uh, first, that uh, constitutions are considered to be, the, to be the act of the people as the, the almighty sovereign. We see this as the power of the, of the people recognized and documented in the preamble of our constitution, which begins as follows, and I quote, we the people of Kenya, exercising our sovereign and inalienable right to determine form of government of our country and having participated fully in the making of the constitution. So I've gone through this and I invited you, as uh, some of my colleagues have, have said, some of our judgments are long. Mine is 125, and uh, it is, I would not uh, wish to read through it. I invite you to read uh, carefully. But uh, after going through all my arguments, uh, and citing various cases, and showing the historical uh, road we passed to acquire, uh, to, to get this very important uh, uh, constitution, 2010, of which I'm, I'm sure all of us are proud of and all, uh, all of us cherish, I came to the conclusion uh, by disposition on this issue, first issue, noting our history, context, and constitutional text, I find that the doctrine of basic structure is uh, applicable to Kenya. Uh, uh, further, that the basic structure of a constitution can only be altered or denatured through the primary constituent power. Uh, C, it's my father finding that the primary constitutional power is the unbound power of the people to make or unmake constitution and genuine exercise of the same, uh, of the same can be identified by the four sequential steps of civic education, public participation, uh, constitution assembly, plus referendum. So I've set out in the, uh, in the judgment what uh, the basic structure entails. And I've set out and I've discussed the issue, where, uh, 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 can the basic structure of the constitution only be altered through primary constitutional power and what constitutes the primary power? I've discussed that. And that was my dispensation. So, on, so that is my dispensation in that question. And I invite you to read that. So in the interest of brevity of time, I'll go to another issue. Uh, issue number two. Issue number two. Whether the president can initiate changes, amendments to the constitution, and whether constitutional amendment can only be initiated by parliament through a parliamentary initiative under the Article 256 of the Constitution, or through a popular initiative under the Article 257 of the Constitution. I'll, deal, I'll give a summarized uh, view of this, which is contained in this uh, uh, opinion and judgment. 
And also one more issue. The other issue is um, the other issue, the place of public issue number five, the place of public participation and article ten vis-a-vis -vis the role of IBC. Uh, the other three, uh, I wish just to 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 set to set out and read and and, uh, and state my disposition without going into uh, the details, and I leave that uh, to you to read when you have the time. Uh, regarding uh, question two, Gatebu J.A. rightly observes that Article 257 makes no qualification of who may or may not promote a popular initiative, and there is no explicit bar against any person, including the president, from promoting a constitution amendment by popular initiative. It is therefore upon the court to interpret and determine the parameters of the same. Now, uh, Justice Tuyot uh, gave uh, the historical context of, uh, uh, of highlighting the genesis of popular initiative, uh, the clauses in the Constitution. This can be traced uh, back to the CKRC final report, where the Commission noted that although the conference agreed the process of constitutional amendment, this must not be left entirely to Parliament. Different options needed further thought, particularly with regard to the exact modalities of engaging the constituent power of the people. The Commission, in addressing the issue, recommended that the that citizen and the civil society may initiate constitutional amendments through a process called popular initiative. This was then captured in the zero draft at Article 346, and the same was retained in the BOMA's draft as follows. And I quote, an, amend, an amendment to this constitution may be proposed by popular in initiative signed by at least one million citizens uh, to vote. So the, the, the genesis of the issue of popular initiative was way back during the CKRC conferences. The same survived in Naivasha, uh, the Naivasha Accord of November 2004 and the Kilifi Accord of June 2005. Uh, and also, it was retained in the harmonized draft. The objective for the popular initiative as captured by the final report of the technical working group of uh, Group K of the Constitution of, of Kenya Review Commission on constitutional commission and amendments to the, to the Constitution held, held up to the creation of 2010 Constitution, the report said a committee introduced a novel idea called popular initiative. This is an innovative where the citizen can only own motion uh, by their own motion initiate amendment to the Constitution by way of a popular initiative, either in the form of a general suggestion or a formulated draft bill. The committee explained that the intention was a starting point towards curbing dicta dictatorship by parliament. Um, to your J went to hold that the contrary to the AG's submission that the intention of the popular in the initiative was to curb parliamentary monopoly for both people and state organs, the historical perspective demonstrated that the popular initiative was a preserve of the, of the citizens. It's for this reason that I concur with Kiyage J when he concluded that the popular initiative route must be citizen-conceived, citizen-initiated, 
and citizen-driven process, and the citizens are the ordinary people, whether as individuals or as organized civil groups. Regarding the assertion that the president can initiate process of constitutional amendment by work of popular initiative in his capacity as a private citizen, two pertinent issues arise. First is the fact that Article 257.5 subscribes the president a role in the amendment process. Article 257.5 provides that if a bill to, the, to amend the constitution proposes an, an, an amendment relating to, to matters under Article 255, the president shall, before assenting to the bill, request IBC to conduct a national referendum within 90 days. The import of this provision is it assigns the president the power to decide whether or not to hold a referendum. To ensure the integrity of the process of constitutional amendment pursuant to Article 257, we cannot have the president playing the role of umpire, who is expected to be neutral and act in the interest of, of the nation, in a process where he is also a player advocating for his own personal interests and agendas. Clearly, there would be a serious conflict of interest. This would be detrimental to the interests of the people and the nation. Second is that the president ceases to be an ordinary citizen the minute he takes office. Article 131 describes him as the head of state and government who exercises ex executive authority of the republic. He's also the commander-in-chief of the Defense Kenya Forces. He chairs the National Security Council pursuant to Article 240, which exercises supervisory control over national security organs, including the Kenya Defense Forces, the National Intelligence Service, and the National Police Service. He is also the symbol of national unity. He plays the various powerful roles pursuant to Article 132, including appointing cabinet secretaries, attorney general, principal secretaries, high commissioners, ambassadors, as well as diplomatic and consular representatives. He is empowered by virtue of Articles 132, 4D and E to declare a state of emergency or declare war, respectively. He may also, pursuant to Article 192, even suspend county governments, either in emergency arising out of internal conflict or war for any other exceptional circumstances. By virtue of holding this, this office, the president is accorded immunity with Article 143. So you can see the, the special position of the president. And we are saying, and uh, I'm saying that um, the president cannot act as a promoter or initiator, what, even if you have to use that name, initiator, initiator, uh, you cannot uh, uh, commence or get involved. In this particular case, there is evidence that not only, not, not, not only did he start the process, but he was also involved throughout, and all steps taken by others was, uh, was uh, the, the genesis was his own actions through the Gazette notice and the legal uh, steps that he, he took. He took. Uh, this power and control the president, that the president exercises by virtue of his position was evident in the inception of the amendment bill as rightly pointed out by the learned judges of the superior courts. Right from the handshake, that was between him as the elected president following the contentious 2017 general elections and rerun and his competitor and challenger, Honorable Raila Odinga. He then proceeded to appoint that. So I gave, uh, in this uh, narration, give, give, 
I give the history of all the steps and, and that he was involved in directly. Um, uh, the build, build, building bridges to a united Kenya from a nation of blood ties to a nation of, of ideals. Uh, the, the, the appointment of the, of the teams, uh, the Gazette notices throughout. Each, the first step had a domino effect and throughout he was involved and the government's role was also, was also uh, very clear. The difference in the amendment bill that was launched on 25th November 2020 from the amendment bill contained in the BBI steering committee report presented to the president on 26 2020 are better contextualized in discussing the place of public participation under issue number five. Uh, now, so I, my conclusion there is that uh, my, my, that uh, on whether the president can initiate a, a, a popular initiative to amend the constitution under, under article 257, it, it is my finding that he cannot. Uh, issue number three, on whether the second schedule to the Constitution of Kenya uh, Amendment Bill 2020 was unconstitutional, I find that on issue number three, I find that the second schedule of the, of the Constitution of Kenya Amendment Bill to, be to have been unconstitutional. Um, on question number four, uh, it is my finding that pursuant to Article 143.2.2, no civil proceedings can be instituted against the president or person performing the functions of the office of the president during their tenure of office with regard to anything done or not done contrary to the Constitution. And uh, regarding pu public participation, uh, I, I wanted to say more, but I will wish, wish to save time, and I want I will invite you to to read the uh, uh, to read the judgment on issue number five. I find that by the time the process was stopped by the High Court, the public participation undertaken was not sufficient, reasonable, or meaningful. Issue number six. I find that the IBC was not properly composed or quoted while it undertook the verification of signatures pursuant to Article 257.4 of the Constitution. However, in the light of the decision in Isaac Biot case, IBC's undertakings in compliance with the decision were lawful. Number seven, it is my finding that the interpretation of Article 257.10 on whether the proposed amendments should be submitted to the people as separate but distinct referendum questions, uh, this issue was not ripe. It was not ripe for determination uh, by uh, to, for determination on the on the issue of costs. I recommend that, being a public interest matter, uh, the parties ought to bear their own costs of proceedings in the High Court, Court of Appeal. And in, the, and in the present appeals. Uh, the final orders of this court are, 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 are as will be contained 
and the lead judgment of the Chief Justice and the President of the Court, uh, at which he will uh, advise uh, the, uh, the Court uh, before we, 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 we end these proceedings. I've had to do this, but I invite you please carefully read my whole judgment. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, the Honorable Mr. Justice Ibrahim Mohammed. Allow me now to invite the Honorable the Justice Mwiru, the Vice President of the Court, to render her opinion. Thank you very much, uh, Judge President. The mandas operandi today um, from the side of the court was to deliver summarized versions of the judgment. The 150 plus pages will be at your disposal at your time that the president of the court shall advise. Um, the lead judgment carries all the a background to the case quite comprehensively, the history of these proceedings, the facts, submissions of all the parties, and the prayers sought. Um, I see no need to rehash that. But at a personal level, I shall read um, what I consider to be brief. The rest, those who are interested in reading judgments afterwards, shall read. To me, democracy is a perpetually contested condition. Uh, within it, through discourse, persuasion, contention, and reconciliation, we are constantly in mutability towards improving our condition through perfecting the substance of the norms and agreements by which we agree to coexist and flourish. Whilst we see this across our courts every day, there are certain matters that attenuate our constant pursuit of social political perfection. The petition before this court is one such. Within the context of our national journey towards perfecting our constitutional democracy, the important role of this court and all parties to this petition becomes all the more apparent. The crux of this petition, as I said, is the extent and nature of constitutional amendment in Kenya, especially within our nation's history of constitutional development and more specifically the experiences and processes that birthed the Constitution of Kenya 2010, any initiative that seeks to change that body of fundamental principles according to which we as Kenyans have agreed to be governed, our Constitution deserves the most attention of all Kenyans whose duty under Article 3 is to respect, to uphold, and defend the Constitution, and all state organs who under Article 2 exercise their delegated authority only through and in accordance with that Constitution. The history of constitutional development in Kenya has been laid out concisely and in detail, both in the High Court and the Court of Appeal, and even in our decisions. 
This history is most relevant in my view. This court, the Supreme Court, has on numerous occasions asserted the importance of historical context as a key tool for courts and tribunals in the interpretation of the provisions of our transformative charter. Through, uh, though a significant factor, it is not and ought not be the only lens through or the weightiest factor upon which we consider the questions of constitutional interpretation. Professor Richard Albert referred to in both the judgments of the superior courts below speaks of the quote rise of unamendability and quote and the quality of formal amendment rules in terms of their availability for both good and ill as posing a challenge for constitutionalism in that though rules of change are indispensable, indispensable for the functioning of constitutional democracy, they at once, quote, open the door to the demise of constitutional democracy itself, unquote. Therefore, may possess the question, how then, quote, can we protect constitutional democracy from the misuse of its own devices, unquote? The late uh, Professor H.W. Kothogendo illuminates this discussion by pointing out that it is pointless having a constitution if constitutionalism is not our concern. I am most cognizant of our history as a country as well as the history of the development of our much cherished 2010 Constitution. I'm also aware of the principles developed by this court rega uh, regarding historical context in the interpretation of the Constitution, a living document that speaks from the past through the present to the future. I must, however, state that the role of our cause must remain within the architecture of the Constitution. It is bound by it all courts are bound by it. The exercise of discretion must be judicious. Though it is the court's task to breathe life into the Constitution and to ensure that its, con is, its text is constantly speaking to the transformative and emancipatory ideals therein, on the other hand, the text of the Constitution cannot be seen as devoid of meaning and content merely to be filled by ideas and opinions by those on the bench, no matter how laudable and noble and well-intentioned those may be. A balance must be maintained, and such balance is crucial to the very architecture of our constitutional democracy for the courts too must not see themselves as immune to being inimical, despotic tendencies. This is especially true in regard to constitutional amendment and the exercise of sovereignty as acknowledged in the Constitution directly and indirectly 
through processes that are prescribed in our constitution. The courts, the courts must seek to steadfastly and purposely defend and protect the constitution and constitutional processes through which the people of Kenya express their sovereign power. Not on the basis of justifiable apprehension and no matter the nobility of the cause, employ judicial craft to retain certain moral or doctrinal limits into the exercise of such sovereign power. It is the sovereign, the people who must decide, and responsibility of all state organs only exercise state authority as delegated by the sovereign. That is to remove all extra constitutional impediments to the free exercise of such sovereign power. This constitution has been stretched in its over 10 years existence, and perhaps this is the most serious attempt yet to espouse its limits in the wake of attempted amendments. To demonstrate the magnitude of this case before these courts, while the High Court framed 13 issues for determination arising out of the consolidated petitions, the Court of Appeal expanded them to 21. On our part, we found seven that required determination, and that's what we are doing this morning, this afternoon. That said, I now proceed to determine the seven issues as framed in summary as my understanding of the Constitution and the law allows me to do. And the first issue is that doctrine and the basic structure itself. If a doctrine is a legal principle of long usage that is widely accepted as such, then my finding is that the Kesavananda case is a judicial reasoning which cannot be elevated to a doctrine above the Constitution. And therefore, the Constitution of Kenya 2010, I find, has a basic structure. But as for the basic structure doctrine, I find that the same is not derivable from our Constitution. And that structure, wherever else it may be found and applied, does not, in my view, apply in the Kenyan constitutional context. 
the manner and process through which sovereign power is exercised in this country is by the citizens in its different forms and is fundamentally important under our constitutional architecture and the constitution can be changed through other mechanisms not limited to the primary constituent power. The second issue, the president, in my reading of Article 143, cannot, no, not, not 143, sorry, Article, um, issue number two, the president cannot directly initiate changes or amendments to the Constitution. An amendment of the Constitution can only be initiated through a parliamentary or popular initiative under Articles 256 and 257 of the Constitution of Kenya 2010. Consequently, therefore, the Constitutional Amendment Bill uh, 2010 is unconstitutional. On the third issue, the second schedule to the Constitutional Amendment Bill 2010, um, I find no difficulty in finding that that bill is unconstitutional insofar as it directs the IEBC on not only the elimination of the number of constituencies, but also the distribution of the proposed new constituencies and the timelines within which to operationalize the same within the constitutional parameters that are given in Article 87 of the 2010 Constitution. The Commission cannot be directed. Article 89 was not even sought to be amended in its entirety. The bill, therefore, is unconstitutional in my finding. Uh, on issue number four, even before I decide whether or not the pre President can be sued first, it's important to note that there really was no proper service of the process and the president was therefore not accorded an opportunity to participate in the pleadings in his personal capacity as he had been sued in his personal capacity. And I find further that um, Article 143, any interpretation of that article must come to the conclusion that the president or the person performing the functions of the office of president cannot be sued during tenure. And although their immunity is not absolute immunity to impunity, it is nevertheless absolute immunity during the tenure of office. Uh, in my judgment, you will see that I have said if any proceedings were begun 
before assumption office, they are stayed. That's what the Constitution says, and they are resumed or are fresh ones initiated after leaving office. On public participation issue number five, I have said where it mattered most, I found no reasonable or um, any degree of public participation, which is a value in Article 10 of our Constitution that I could um, consider allowing the standing of the actions that were done without public participation. This court set the test in BAT versus the CS Health, and I find therefore that uh, for me the test was not met. On issue number six, uh, the totality of my finding, even considering what the findings in Isaiah B. Watt and in the Katiba case and the effect of the Katiba case on Section 5 were, I would rest with Article 250 of the Constitution and say that the IABC was not only properly uh, constituted with the minimum number that was required by Article 250, it had quorum and nothing was shown to the contrary. The last issue, um, on the last issue as to the referendum question, I agree with uh, all my colleagues in this court and in the courts below that have said that the matter was not ripe, it still is not. The bill never went past um, the uh, IEBC for it to be submitted to referendum. I find therefore that uh, engaging in a discussion in that matter is a complete waste of precious judicial time and I would not get myself entangled in such a non-issue as that one. As to costs, this being um, a public in litigation issue, I would say that they lie with each party. And those are the orders. The body of the judgment shall give my explanations for each of my findings, I thank you, Judge President. Thank you very much, the Honorable the Justice Miru, Vice President, for that rendition. Uh, before I read the final disposition of the court, allow me to express the court's appreciation to all counsel and all parties and amici appearing in this matter for your erudite and well-researched oral and written submissions. We also wish to thank you for patiently sitting and bearing with us for the last six hours as we delivered this judgment. The court notes in a special way the galaxy of legal luminaries, among them distinguished legal 
scholars, professors of constitutional law from Kenya and other jurisdictions who joined this case to enrich our judgment. We found their views very useful, although they were varied and divergent, especially on the applicability of the basic structure and doctrine, and whether it had acquired international application under the provisions of Article 2.5 of the Constitution. The court's decision has been enriched and benefited a great deal from the arguments advanced by all the parties who appeared before us. We hope with the full noise of time, even our local scholars will find their way in other jurisdictions, in other countries, America, Germany, or even Africa, to share our rich jurisprudence in those, with those courts. We also wish to thank our law clerks for their research and exceptional industry in supporting the work of this court. That said, in the course of writing this judgment, the court observed with concern some commentaries on the pending judgment carried out in the social media by some counsel, some of whom are appearing in this matter. The contents of those social media commentaries were, in our view, meant to influence, intimidate, or scandalize the court. This unfortunate practice is emerging, and unless it is checked, it will erode the confidence and the dignity of the court. It would also amount to 